Hi, I'm Trevor, and welcome to Catching Up on Cinema. If you aren't familiar with the program, Catching Up on Cinema is a film analysis podcast wherein we introduce each other to films, expand our cinematic horizons, and, in essence, catch up on our cinema. So it is the month of November 2021, and it is, of course, no theme November. Essentially what this means is uh, my regular co-host Kyle uh, is busy with some real-life shit, uh, so I've been desperately reaching out across the internet for a random co-host uh, to supply random film episodes for us to review from week to week. Uh, and in joining me uh, for this week's episode of Catching Up on Cinema, I have my good friend Sean Parker uh, from Hapstance Films. How's it going, Sean? He was desperate enough to peek, took me this time. <laughs> it's going well, though. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased that you reached out. Oh no! It, this this has been a long time coming. I mean, it, it's it's interesting that I've I've been doing a movie review review podcast for a couple of years now, and it just never occurred to me. It's like, huh? I have a friend that's a filmmaker. Perhaps I should talk to him about a film someday on the internets. <laughs> of course you should. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which brings us to today. So uh, as I had mentioned, uh, Sean Sean Parker, as I usually refer to him. Uh, is a filmmaker and uh, we we met uh, in our college days uh, funny enough we we did not actually share a class together um, I found myself in a weird predicament uh, back in those days where I, I desperately wanted in the film program uh, however during my entire four-year stay at that college at the Evergreen State College I, I never found my way into said program so instead I took a lot of night courses and I helped out a lot of people who were in that program and of course one of these people would be sean parker um but yeah sean how uh, how would you describe your experience at a at evergreen in the film program what what did you take away from that oh uh i mean it, it was overall a, a pretty good experience it got a lot better once the uh, restraints were taken off and you get a little bit more freedom in how you go about doing things the beginning was a little rough I, I, I'm not sure if you really missed out on all that much because going through the like the the only track at Evergreen was you had to take their MediaWorks program and then you can go into the level up on that MediaWorks from everyone that I took it with and for people who took it subsequently in later years where it like apparently got even worse <laughs> was a slog. <laughs> It was uh, it was kind of anti-narrative. It was anti-mainstream film, all about experimental stuff. And we didn't watch movies that had discernible stories. That was basically my experience, uh, which was a very rude awakening to, uh, to film studies from what I expected them to be as a lover of clear cinema, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> No, that actually sounds very consistent with uh, the thoughts of some other people I knew who were in that program. Uh, the The anti narrative angle uh, of of the curriculum was was heavily enforced, and uh, yeah, it led to a lot of people just kind of scratching their heads and being like, "But part of my attraction to film as a medium is its ability to convey emotion and story." Um, oh you've fallen for the trap you've, you've gotten enslaved to director's vision <laughs> i mean that that's almost verbatim the kind of stuff that i was hearing uh from my roommate at the time who was also in the media works program with you um 
but yeah it was through that program that uh, i kind of came to meet sean parker uh, as i said we were not actually classmates and and in fact like it it it's kind of weird sean i don't know if this has occurred to you but like it's weird because i think of you sean parker as as a as a dear friend <laughs> Um, however, it's like occurred to me over the past several years that like since I've known you, it seems like our friendship is based around work to some extent. Where, mm. it, where it's like there, there's not a whole lot of like like uh, I don't know hangouts or like or like dinners and stuff. It's all just like I got this thing I'm working on. You want to work on it with me, and then we can have some good times working on it, and then part ways, and then come back together whenever more work needs to be done. <laughs> it's all a very uh, Hollywood dynamic we've got going. I, I guess so. It's like a it's like a creative partnership of sorts, but it's like high, it's extremely loose. Where it's like I'm the I'm the mercenary, like I'm the hired gun that gets roped into things. Where it's like we need we need more bodies. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> <laughs> but it's a funny dynamic but it's one that i i have no qualms with like it, it it's fine by me it's just funny that it took me i don't know half a lifetime or something to realize like huh <laughs> like that's, a, that's an interesting structure to a friendship but you know it's it's led to us staying in touch over the years like there have been plenty of reasons and ways for us to lose touch with each other but it just hasn't happened so i'm that's I'm, true i'm happy for that oh which reminds me uh i, I should I should reach out to you again soon about doing some voice acting on some stuff. Because I know that you're quite well-versed in that. There's rumors that you you lead up a very successful podcast. <laughs> Thousands of listeners flock to it just just for your own voice. So, Well, uh, I would appreciate that. Um, I have expressed interest in, in voiceover or voice acting work uh, like as long as you've known me. It's not been something that I've really gone out of my way to do. I've, I've always shied away from it. However, uh, in recent years, largely as a result of trying to promote this damn podcast, um, I, I did have to join the Twitter, uh, something that I, I stayed as far away as possible from until I had to start promoting a thing I was doing on the internet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> but um, through Twitter, I, I came to realize that, holy shit, there are a lot of people invested in the voice acting world um there there is like an interconnected community of them online such that it's like i don't know if i actually gain inspiration from that or if it like quashes all my inspiration because there's just so many goddamn people out there trying to do exactly the same thing i would i would like to do <laughs> yeah yeah and i i get it i i definitely understand that feeling I mean, like being a filmmaker now, it's kind of like being a musician 30 years ago. It's like, big deal, everyone is. <laughs> yeah, no, actually, like, especially with the advent of, like, portable technology, like, like cell phones and whatnot, being able to, being able to construct films without even pulling the footage out of your phone. Like, there are editing programs built into, like, iPhones and stuff that allow you to shoot entire films on them. Uh, in our day, no, you you needed special tools and and or training just to make something even remotely close to a film like it's good like good job you have an eight millimeter camera you're running around with it's like well how are you going to edit that it's like in my case sean parker what i used to do was uh i would do it all in camera it's like we're not going to edit anything we're going to get the timing exactly right we're going to do everything <laughs> right on the first take <laughs> and it's going to result in something that has a lot of uh 
instances where you can hear action being called uh, before the action begins. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of instances of actors <laughs> teleporting in the frame because uh, somehow the tape got rolled back a couple of frames in, be- in between record button sessions or something. Um, but these days, these you know, the kids, they have access to all the tools they need to be filmmakers. Yeah. And in fact, like editing as a, as a science and as an art form is something that I think very young kids are exposed to like from the cradle now. It's like if, if you think about the creative tools that you need to have access to in your mind uh, in order to edit edit footage to construct a narrative, it is a skill, um, but it's one that is being imparted to people from an earlier and earlier age such that by the time they get to our age, like, holy shit, they've got a leg up on all of us. <laughs> oh, yeah. Plus there's like, you know, how many exhaustive youtube channels like detailing like editing analysis of like the highest caliber that anyone can just watch now we didn't have that when we were in film school or before film school like yeah there are a lot of resources now that are widely available and yes like as a as a creative individual these are all things that unfortunately we're all aware of from day to day um, but it's your job at the end of the day um, to acknowledge that any any product that comes from you cannot exist without you. Uh, therefore, your your effort is well spent. So persevere, do it. Like that that's something that my brothers always tried to hammer into my head. That's like just because everybody else is doing something ninety nine percent the same as you doesn't mean that's going to be a hundred percent. So take take your shot. <laughs> just wise for, words yes <laughs> my brother's a wise man I, I try my best to listen to him i mean anybody who beat me up for the first half of my life <laughs> I, I take their words to heart <laughs> now i have one question about your old movies if if something did go like just completely not as intended in a shot would you rewind and uh, the tape and like shoot it again and risk like messing up the previous shot or would you just roll with it and like whatever it happened it's like canon now and we're moving forward with what happened in that shot instead okay sean parker so we i did try that a few times it usually would go horrifically wrong (laughs) Um, usually usually it would end up splicing multiple shots together and like i said you'd have the uh the teleporting actor effect where it's just Uh. like it's relatively the same angle and yet the people in the frame are jumping around like in space and time uh, yeah. because because the shots have been spliced because we tried to roll back the tape. Um, but my God, Sean Parker, I my the patience I had as a as a youth as a youth um, was incredible because I used to shoot stop motion in camera without editing. <laughs> so I used to like I used to do the there's a there's a method to the double tap of the record button on an old DV cam to do stop motion where it's like there was no screen capture option on my camera. So you had to like right. tap tap. <laughs> you so you might get like three frames. You might get seven frames depending on how precise you are. <laughs> yeah. You had to take a deep breath and you had to, you had to get those wrist muscles twitching. You had to, tap, tap. <laughs> you had to get that double tap just right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but before we uh, we before we get to the movie uh, that Sean Parker had selected for our No Theme November event month, uh, Hapstance Film, Sean. Uh, Hapstance is the brainchild of you and uh, your creative buddy, your creative like what what would you call him? Like heterosexual life partner? <laughs> like like a... <laughs> you know, I think another one of my friends actually claimed that title verbatim, but uh, it's pretty accurate. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, how about you? How about you talk a little bit about Hapstance films? Because it's something that I want to say you started 
immediately after college. Is that right? That is more or less correct. About a year. Actually, um, we, we've just hit it like kind of a 10 year milestone of wow. half stance. Awesome. Just this, just this fall, uh, which is kind of crazy to think about. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's just kind of a comedy group. I like to call it a comedy collective, but it's, it's really just kind of me and Austin and whoever we can like rope in at the time. Uh, just doing a lot of silly sketch stuff on YouTube. We've got a couple of other projects. We have a feature film under our belt as well. We kind of did right off the gate uh, at the end of college, which uh, you you were in in a very small way. <laughs> Extremely memorable <laughs> big screen splash there. <laughs> as uh, a good seven or eight commando clones yeah shooting each other up in a quarry yeah and and a, a clown and in, in football pads wielding a uh, ak-47 <laughs> that was great it really is one of my favorite parts <laughs> the, it just the timing comes of out of nowhere <laughs> yeah, the timing of it's pretty spectacular it just kind of pops in and out and it's just like hang on did i just see that <laughs> uh but yeah that's uh that's that's pretty much the story of Hapstance. That's that's all anyone who's more interested to hear about what we think of Fearless would need to know about Hapstance. Yeah, uh, which brings us to the topic of hand, which of course is uh, the Ronnie Yu film uh, Fearless, starring of course Jet Li uh, from the year two thousand and six. Uh, so Sean Parker, this film uh, is of course a martial arts epic of sorts. Uh, of course, headlined by uh, the master himself, Jet Li. But uh, why is it you selected? Uh, this movie for us to talk about today you know uh no like major reason just kind of like i remember seeing it a couple times back in college and like really liking it thinking it was like one of my favorite martial arts films probably my favorite of jet lee's filmography uh and i was kind of curious if it if it held up 15 years later i mean that's a that's a fine enough reason to come back to it um, it's funny. I have mixed feelings about it these days. Um, unfortunately, some of that has to do with politics, <laughs> um, right? right. Uh, which are, are, are visible, uh, in this 2006 film, especially, uh, depending on which version of the film, which you watch, uh, which we'll get into in a bit here. But, um, yeah, I, I put this film pretty high, uh, in his filmography as well, uh, in regards to like my personal feelings on his films. Uh, Jet Li was never honestly my guy uh, as far as martial arts cinema went. Um, he, a, a huge chunk of his filmography is, is dedicated to very traditional, like mainland Chinese, like Wuja type films. Mm-hmm. And that's never really been my cup of tea. Like I was spoiled by Hong Kong cinema of the 80s and 90s and, and especially the mid 2000s when Donnie Yen and Wilson Yip started their massive collaboration. Uh, throughout that decade and beyond um i've always been more of a fan of of seeing martial arts in the modern day settings Uh, for some Mm -hmm. reason it always just tickles me just right to see people doing these fanciful movements these acrobatics while wearing like modern day street clothes like it just it it sticks out like a sore thumb like it does it doesn't jive but for some reason it just seems more appropriate it almost makes real life feel more magical 
knowing like, oh, they're they're out there somewhere, like right now, doing that. <laughs> yeah, it, it, there's something about that where it's just like you know you, you can have it. It's like having a, an extra set of tools on the set of an action film, where it's like it's not just Mel Gibson running around with a mullet shooting at people. It's like oh, if the gun gets knocked out of his hand, all of a sudden he can start doing fucking cartwheels and backflips and wheel kicks and stuff. And it's like, and because it takes place in this setting, it's like, it doesn't feel weird. It's just like, oh, that's expected. Like, like we're all waiting for that part where the gun gets knocked out of his hand so things can get crazy and they can bust out the martial arts moves. Uh, but yeah, the more traditional martial arts films, especially like Wuja type stuff with like heavy wire work and, and period garb and period aesthetics and and i don't know uh philosophy behind them just never really sat particularly well with me uh it could be a, a cultural boundary that i've just not been able to get over um mm. but when uh when he made his splash in american cinema the f- uh, first time i saw him sean parker i'd ask you the same question but the first time i saw jet lee in ernst was lethal weapon 4 um as ah. the villain um how about you sean what was your first uh jet lee film Oh gosh, I'm trying to remember. I mean, I I feel like I watched his whole filmography at the time in like a very short duration. So it all kind of blended together. Like I'm kind of like you. I was not like super into the old school Wuxia style martial arts movies. I was like really into Jackie Chan. I watched all of Jackie Chan's movies until it was like just down to his earliest stuff. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll I'll try another guy yeah when you hit the killer meteors it's time to move on (laughs) (laughs) so i think that's how i found jet lee just like getting anything i could from the library um and i i I always remember feeling like jet lee's filmography was like really really a mixed bag like to the extremes um but i always thought that Jet Li himself was like a super compelling performer. Like his gifts on screen are great. He's fun to watch. He's just kind of, even in just like dialogue scenes, he's got this really playful energy that just kind of shines through and makes him really likable. Um, which definitely uh, was, it was fun to see that on full force in Fearless as well. Yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out because that. It's funny because like he so often plays like the stoic, like like he does kind of in the second half of this film. But honestly, the first half of this film, when he's kind of a you know arrogant pissant, it to me that's Jet Li at his best because he does have kind of a, a playful quality about him. He does mm-hmm. kind of have he has a good arrogant kind of smirk about him. Um, but it's not something he's asked to do all the time in his films. But every time you see it come out, it's like, wow, that really worked. Yeah, I mean, for fuck's sake, even in the one. When he's playing, I am you, Law. I am nobody's bitch. <laughs> you are mine. <laughs> like when he's doing that, like there's stuff he's doing with his face and his body language that it's big, it's loud for sure. But somehow it it seems like that's that's his wheelhouse. Like that's where he's at his best, where he's he's able to be a little bit more flashy. Um, and I always appreciate seeing that come out. Um, but yeah, his filmography, you're absolutely right. It does have some peaks and valleys to it, for sure. I mean, a lot of people will point to the the Once Upon a Time in China films as, like, a high point. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Like, I think from a from an audiovisual standpoint, like, and in terms of martial arts choreography, they're absolutely fantastic, especially his, his throwdown with Donnie Yen in the second one, 
I figured you'd like that part. <laughs> of course. No, it, it's awesome. However, at the same time, it's like, it, it personally, it's not really my preferred rhythm or style. Like, there, there's a lot, of, a lot of weapon work, a lot of wire work, a lot of very, very fanciful wire work. And it's like, I appreciate all that, but it's, it's more difficult for me to engage with, such that I enjoy mm-hmm. those movies, all three of them, and... God, there's so many more than that. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, that franchise yeah. is the fucking Thunderdome. Like, there are no rules. <laughs> um, but for me personally, it's like I enjoyed them, but I, I don't have as much desire to go back to them, I think, as some other people. Like, for me personally, one of my favorite Jet Li movies has always been Fist of Legend. Um, I, I've always really liked that one. Oh, and in fact, that yeah. one has a has an interesting connection to this film where he's playing the fictionalized student of the character that he portrays in Fearless. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, uh, it's a story that's been retold numerous times. Uh, the earliest example I know of is Bruce Lee's Fist of Fury, um, which right. is the same story as Fist of Legend, but uh, tor- uh, told in a more, uh, I don't know, aggressive style. Because uh, Fist of Legend has a more empathetic quality to it. It's it's It tries to see things in a more well-rounded worldview, where Fist of Fury, it's like the title is fitting like like bruce lee is just a ball of anger in that movie and he he just like ruthlessly murders anyone in his way yeah that's what i remember (laughs) (laughs) i mean it's awesome don't get me wrong but but fist of legend is like kind of a retelling of that but the way the story is framed is it's more just like eh, maybe maybe it wasn't that bad. Like eh, maybe we should just beat more people up and kill less people you know (laughs) and of course it has that like amazing like 10 minute fist fight at the end between Jet Li and Billy Chow uh that's it's just it just goes on and it's like the it's like the alley brawl in They Live where it's just like oh my god like like how how, how long are they gonna hit each other like I have oh, no geez. problem with this it's just we've been here for a while guys it's like is there more movie or what <laughs> uh, uh, I should check that out again I know it's got the same it's got Yuan Ping doing the choreography of that one too right uh, it's either Wu Ping or Cora Yuan. Uh, I'm not positive on that. I should probably look that up. But either way, uh, it's phenomenal. And also, they they have some fun with their choreography in Fist of Legend, where they uh, they introduce some new concepts. Like they add a few new wrinkles uh, to Jet Li's character Chen Zhen, his uh, his repertoire. Where like he they have a subplot where he uh, trained in like Western martial arts, so he incorporates like a boxing stance into some of his movements and. One of my favorite fights in that movie is where he and one of the other apprentices of his master have like a, it's like an, it's, it's a really aggressive spar. <laughs> it's like, I, guys, like, I know concussion protocol isn't a thing now, but like, you might, you might want to be careful, guys. <laughs> um, but it, the choreography of that's really great where we, we get to see that uh, kind of a nod to the Bruce Lee uh, heritage of the character where it's like, we see Jet Li's character take a minute to pause and rethink his his approach to things, and there's a, a mix up in the choreography that is really splendid to see unfold. But yeah, hmm. uh, Fist of Legend will forever be one of my favorites, and also it's a it's an oddball pick, but uh, one of the other movies you floated as a potential for for this recording was uh, Unleashed, mm-hmm. aka uh, Danny the Dog. Which is by far and away the superior title for that film. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, but. You know, not as marketable, right? <laughs> I mean, it, that's your opinion, man. 
I mean, as far as the studio brass is concerned. <laughs> yeah, for me, I I would have delighted at the, at the possibility of heading to like the ticket booth and saying, "One for Danny the dog, please." Oh yeah. No, it's a much it's a much more fitting title for that movie in terms of just like the tone and the kind of like surrealism of the premise. Uh, it was really tempting to go with that one. Like Fearless and Unleashed are probably like if Fearless is my favorite of his Chinese movies, Unleashed is like far and away my favorite of his US films. Even though wasn't it a French director? It's kinda hard it's kinda Western films, we just call it that. I mean I'm not looking it up, uh, so this is me talking directly <laughs> out of my ass. But I, I believe it's I believe it's the French director of uh The Incredible Hulk. And, oh, uh, and one of the transporter. Films. I think Louis Leterrier. Or, oh, I don't know French pronunciation. <laughs> I'm going to say that you nailed it. <laughs> I, I could be completely wrong on that, but it, uh, even in tone, the movie has a very French quality to it. Like you, yeah. you, it has some French sensibilities to it that are unmistakable. Like it, it's difficult for me to articulate exactly what I'm referencing here, but if you see it, you know it. <laughs> um, but, but Unleashed is a movie that I. I I also would have delighted as at a chance to talk about. And in fact, um, I may push to have Kyle watch that one with me. Cause I know he's a Bob Hoskins fan and Bob oh. Hoskins is delightful in that movie. Oh, he, he is. He is a slippery heel in that. <laughs> like he's awesomely bad in that. Um, and also it's a covert Scott Adkins film on top of that. <laughs> oh, no kidding. Uh, which character was he? Uh, he has no speaking lines, which is, it's a common thing in Scott Adkins' filmography. I mean, for fuck's sake, he was in Doctor Strange and got to be in the front credits of that movie, you know, where they have the, the fancy CGI animation for the front credits of the MCU movies. Oh, he wow. made the front credits, didn't have a single line of dialogue, and he got unceremoniously killed by a sentient cape, <laughs> but he made the front credits, goddammit. Um, wow, what a unique honor. <laughs> I know, for real. Uh, but in Unleashed, he plays one of the... Uh, one of the people in the swimming pool fight, like the emptied out swimming pool towards the end. Okay. It's like sense. a three on one fight, uh, maybe even four on one fight against Jet Li. Uh, oh, yeah. Is he the guy that, like, Jet Li could have just, like, completely smashed his head with the hammer, but, like, spares him and he's correct. Like, looking? Okay. Yeah. I, I, I can place the face now that you've mentioned that scene. I. I, I see it. <laughs> yeah. No, he, he, he's the guy that gets the last shot of the fight. He does a backflip. That's kind of it, <laughs> but but it's a secret Scott Adkins movie. Plus, like I said, uh, Kyle is a fan of Bob Hoskins, and I think Jet Li gets to flex some acting muscles he's not always called upon to do um, in that film. Like he he yeah. is a very empathetic character, and a lot of the times he's not allowed to speak, um, and he conveys a lot with just his his body his body language and and his face and his eyes in particular. So yeah, oh, it's a great performance. Like I think. It might be his strongest, from mem my memory at least. Like, he really has a good dramatic range on that film. I don't know, man. Gabriel Eula. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well. <laughs> Especially when he's doing his... Uh his uh, convict face like in the opening scene of that movie where he's in his like his uh his uh, orange tracksuit like his prison garb and they have him in the the riot shield helmet and he's like going 
yeah. <laughs> like, like he's making Quasimodo faces and stuff. It's like, I don't know what you're trying to convey there, but it's okay because you're you're about to get shot in the face and and you're going to turn into a better version of yourself in a second. So it's it's not a big deal. Uh, so you heard it here, folks. Uh, the One is definitely a future episode on Catching Up on Cinema. Um, and Unleashed is a maybe, <laughs> even though it's by far the better film between the two. Good. It's about time because you, uh, you mentioned that Jet Li had not been really covered on this show so far. So yeah, yeah it's kind of surprising because um, I mean I I share creative ownership of Catching Up on Cinema, cinema with my buddy Kyle. Um, we have very different sensibilities and interests when it comes to film. Uh, I of course am more interested in the martial arts cinema, so usually those episodes come from me um but yeah as far as i know we we have never talked about jetly on this show so this is this this is a really good thing this is opening the door for better things uh for the future um so thanks for that sean parker but oh my pleasure um but yeah we should probably talk about the film proper uh, it's so, been a bit yeah <laughs> it's been a minute <laughs> so uh the movie of course is fearless from 2006 directed by yanni ronnie Yu. Uh, who, of course, I know for directing Bride of Chucky and Freddy vs. Jason uh, prior to this film. Uh, he is a Hong Kong filmmaker, as far as I understand. Um, and he has a diverse filmography. As far as I understand, he largely got the horror, like the American horror movie gigs out of, on the strength of his uh, Bride with White Hair films. Um, oh, right. Which I have not seen, but I have seen select clips from them. And it's like, ah, yeah, I, I could see why they would want him. Plus... Uh, the late 80s and, and into the late 90s were a turbulent era in Chinese cinema, in particular Hong Kong cinema, because that was when the, the handover was occurring, when the city of Hong Kong was being, the 100-year the lease uh, of the British ownership of that city was being handed back to the Chinese. Um, and you saw a lot of Hong Kong film directors kind of like make their way overseas uh, to the U.S. Like that would mm. be, like I think, Choi Hark did that to some extent. I, I know for, a f like, John Woo certainly started his career over here largely as a result of, like, being unsure as to what his career would be in that different political arena. Um, but, yeah, Ronnie Yu uh, made his splash uh, via those horror franchises. And, of course, he gave us this great film, Fearless. Um, and plot summary is basically this is the story of uh, Ho Yan Jia, uh, who, as we mentioned earlier, funny enough, serves as, like, the catalyst uh, for many other films made prior to this one, um, basically any film uh, featuring the character of Chen Zhen, uh, who is a martial arts folk hero, uh, purely fabricated. Uh, basically, the passing of Hu Yanjia leads to this character of Chen Zhen flipping the fuck out and having to murder a bunch of people, usually Japanese people, because of the time period in which it was set. Um, <laughs> Bruce Lee famously portrayed the character Jet Li would go on to play the character in the 90s. Even Donnie Yen went on to play the character in uh, Legend of the Fist, which is, like, the opening of that movie is ludicrous and kind of fun, but the rest of it's just kind of like, oh, they ran out of ideas. <laughs> <laughs> but the opening of it's pretty fun. I think you get to see... Uh, it's like wire foo and martial arts mixed into a World War One setting. Uh with a rip-off Pirates of the Caribbean music set to it. So it's just like, I don't even know what the fuck okay. this is. But I I'm, get some points for originality. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I'm on board with this. It's, it's a mishmash of totally unrelated things, but I have no problem with this. Now, the, why don't we have, like, a full movie of that? Like, 
take like everything that worked about like project a and just bring it up a couple a couple decades of like filmmaking and like just deliver that kind of an epic i mean i wouldn't mind that at all like all you all you need to do is just like revisit some of the material of project a i mean for fuck's sake the i think the whole world to some extent is just waiting for the next pirates movie because I think people oftentimes forget just just how impactful the Pirates of the Caribbean movies were in terms of like international appeal. Like mm. those movies cleaned the fuck up and and had so much influence over over global cinema. Like if you look at Hong Kong, Chinese, Korea, like like Japanese, Korean films, like the world over, like like of that era, that you you find these subtle nods where it's like, huh, people swinging on ropes huh weird Hans zimmer sounding music it's it's like i think i know where that came from like that the timelines match up here but I, I think i think the world wouldn't mind seeing a bunch of people doing fucking martial arts in a like a pirate setting or something or like oh, a, i sure wouldn't or a turn of the turn of the century setting that'd be i awesome. remember i remember that's what i was hoping for when the when the third pirates of the caribbean was like being marketed and it was like oh it's gonna have like chow yun fat and like all this chinese setting stuff like are we gonna get martial arts of course not but <laughs> yeah but i never watched have. it but uh i remember there was that uh premium cable show marco polo that that was kind of how it was marketed where it's like it's it's a period drama but then it takes place in like singapore or malaysia or something it's like oh we're, we're going to use that as an excuse to incorporate mar- modern day martial arts into a period setting uh, I don't think anybody watched that show, so I, I don't know if it was successful in that endeavor. But uh, these days we do have that show uh, Warrior, um, which I think is on its third season now. And it takes place in, like uh, I think, early 1900s or late 1800s uh, San Francisco. Uh, it involves uh, Chinese immigrants in that city and like gang wars and stuff. Uh, so it, it does kind of scratch that particular itch if you're at all interested. And I, I think it's... Uh, I think it started life as like a Cinemax show, and it shows because there's a lot of tits <laughs> in that first season. I think they scaled it back for the later seasons, but like the early episodes of that were making me kind of uncomfortable. It's like <laughs> I don't need this much dong and, and and this much tits in my martial arts programming. Um, but I think they scale it back in later seasons. But now you can find it on HBO, um, and it's it's doing pretty well, and it, it has hmm. a, a interesting cast of people that. Um, likely are going to become big deals uh, in the years to come so maybe look forward to that but wow very cool yeah uh but this film fearless uh takes place in uh basically the 1900s like 1900 through 1910 essentially and it's the story of hoi Jia, uh, who is a, a martial arts master uh from that period who famously uh clashed with uh, foreign powers uh to sort of promote the strength of of the chinese people um and he would go on to become a folk hero of, of such and uh this film in a lot of ways i want to say kind of kicked off uh, a new wave of ma- martial arts uh, biopics um because this this is a common trope in this particular subgenre of cinema where we, we take and a real life figure, a real life martial artist, and we just kind of spin a yarn <laughs> about them, um, and nobody seems to care whether whether it's true or not. We just use it as a foundation, like as a jumping off point uh, for a kind of a fanciful martial arts story that doubles as like I don't know a 
uh, a parable of sorts, like a, a how to live a good life kind of story. <laughs> yeah, from what I read, they took some pretty sizable liberties uh, from the real Huawei Ninja life with this film, uh, particularly details about like family tragedy and becoming a widow and losing his daughter. It's like that didn't happen. <laughs> so. Yeah. Uh, almost this entire story is fabricated. Um, and in fact, like I said, I want to say this movie served as like the launching off point for this trend uh, in, in Chinese cinema in particular, um, because only a few years later we'd get the, the Ip Man series of films. I was going to ask, yeah, if you thought these those owed a debt to this film's existence. I think it's impossible to ignore that. I'm, I'm pretty sure I my eyes tell me that maybe some of these sets were recycled for the production of Ip Man, in particular the, uh, the arena setting uh, from the Tianjin uh, uh, village. In the, oh, in, okay. It looks almost identical. Like the camera placement has a lot to do with it, but it looks incredibly similar to like the town square uh, for mm. the finale of the first Ip Man film in particular. Um, and and even the restaurant set looks kind of similar to the restaurant in the first Ip Man. Um, this is just me talking out my ass. I didn't I didn't actually look up if these sets were actually recycled. <laughs> but something about the camera placement and the way these buildings are laid out looks very very similar. And there's only a couple years between the productions, so if not the same set, probably the same soundstage or something repurposed or something. Mm. Um, but yeah, I want to say that this movie, the success of this movie, uh, probably gave way to more of more movies of of this ilk. Um, Ip Man, of course, would become the most widely publicized and most famous of them. Um, but there were several others in between, and in, and in fact, uh, the Ip Man franchise, in and of itself, has become Thunderdome as well. Um, as there are multiple strains of Ip Man films out there, multiple franchises, and, right. and in fact, television series all produced parallel to each other, some of which have the blessing of the descendants of the man himself, some of which do not. Um, and in fact, this movie, Fearless, uh, as Sean Parker had mentioned, um, the descendants of Ho Yanja himself were not particularly pleased with the portrayal of the character and his story, uh, because most of the story is total bullshit. Um, and in <laughs> fact, like the, the things that come very close to being somewhat true end up being false in in minor ways like for instance like the challenge uh to the foreign fighters like the the o'brien character um apparently is based on a real life incident where there there was a a a foreigner uh on chinese soil that was calling out uh chinese fighters and calling them the sick men of asia this was a thing in this particular time period but the it's highly it's highly thought of as an instance of like he was calling them out, but no actual fists were thrown. It was just kind of like he he called him out publicly and then he walked away and nobody got hurt. It's like he was just oh. trolling. Yeah, he was just trolling in the 1900s. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, uh, basically everything that happens in this movie you have to take with a grain of salt. So this is by no means like a factual retelling of this character's story. Um, but one huge wrinkle. Uh, in our discussion about this movie is going to be the fact that there are multiple fucking versions of this movie. Um, so there are at least, at least three different versions of Fearless that I'm aware of. Uh, there is the, I guess you'd call it the international or theatrical cut, uh, which is about like, a, I think it's an hour and 43 minutes long. So short of shy of two hours. 
Um, and then there's a 140-minute cut, which is the director's cut. Um, and then there's apparently an unrated cut, which, as far as I understand, is just the theatrical cut, but presumably with uh, additional footage to the fight sequences or something. Um, but Sean Parker, you're you're only familiar with the theatrical cut, is that correct? That is correct. I've watched this movie three times, and each time it's been that version. <laughs> yeah, uh, I I actually was not even aware of the director's cut until just like the day before. And in fact, I was telling Sean Parker that I went on a grand journey uh, trying to fucking locate uh, a physical disc, a physical Blu-ray of this movie uh, to prep for this conversation because uh, I became aware of a substantially longer director's cut. And I will, you know, I want to get the whole picture because that much of a a difference in runtime suggests to me that it's a radically different film. It's not, (laughs) (laughs) but um, I, I went out and I hit up like a half dozen secondhand stores and like scattered across the area. And uh, Sean Parker, I just wanted to share with you real quick. Um, the my haul uh, because you know I can't oh, walk boy. into a secondhand store without buying some form of trash. <laughs> so it's like uh, I never actually found it. I ended up renting it from uh, uh, Scarecrow Video, which of course is a repository for uh, I think the largest media library in the country. Uh, it's located in the University oh, District of Seattle. Uh, so if you're in the area, by all means, check it out. You will find you will find some good shit there because uh, they have basically everything it's it's amazing actually but uh anyway uh, just to flash it real quick uh, so this will be a speed round uh i have a Dr- dragon dynasty dvd of the city of violence oh okay nice which is a Yu <laughs> sung won film it's a, a korean film that is one of my very favorite korean films uh, i actually do own it on like official korean dvd but it's a foreign region, and I gave my all-region player to my ex-girlfriend. So I have not had the, the means of being able to watch one of my favorite Korean movies for several years now. So I figured <laughs> I already own this, but now I own it on Region 1 DVD so I can watch it again. Um, then I have, I believe, another secret Scott Adkins movie, Black Mask 2. City oh my masks, god oh no which is god awful <laughs> i know but it features, <laughs> it features tyler main rob van dam and uh, i think the debut of andy on uh, who in recent years has become one of the more prominent figures in like hong kong martial arts cinema uh, i think he's actually canadian he's he's a secret canadian he's one of those guys <laughs> but, uh, do you know do you know if they even tried to get jet Li to come back for that one or if they were just like don't bother like just move ahead without him <laughs> When did this come out? Because I want to say they they just didn't ask. Um, I oh that font is terrible. I can't actually read the year, but um, I want to say he was a bit busy, so they probably just didn't bother. Um, then Makes I have sense. a movie that I've been trying to see for a really long time now, but it's always been way too expensive for no good fucking reason. But I just found this for very very cheap in the back corner of a secondhand store, The Meg. <laughs> uh, because uh, there's a subgenre of film that uh, my buddy and I, uh, Brad from the Cinema Speak podcast, uh, he coined the phrase an eat 'em up. Uh, it's essentially an a- animal attack movie. Um, oh, I'm, a, yeah. I'm a sucker for animal attack movies, aka eat 'em ups, and The Meg is about a big fucking shark. So, and it's about Jason <laughs> Statham fighting a big fucking shark. So, of course, I want to see it. 
Um, and additionally, I also have Death Race. Oh, the Paul W. S. Anderson directed Death Race, uh, featuring Jason Statham, and uh, Robin Cho is in there as well. Uh, I I always thought that was neat that uh, Paul W. S. Anderson gave him a, a, another acting gig because his career should have like taken off after Mortal Kombat, but it just didn't. Yeah. So it was yeah. it was really nice to see him have a small role in in you know his his buddy Paul W S Anderson's film. Uh, then I have another stakeout, not not <laughs> stakeout one, but another stakeout because I as a child saw this movie and thought it was really really funny, and I'm really curious to see if it actually is because it might not be. <laughs> but right. I thought it was funny as a kid. <laughs> then I have a movie that uh. You went all out. I, I kind of you went want... all out on the questionable movie haul. Most of these were like three dollars, Sean Parker, <laughs> and I was really frustrated because I drove all day, <laughs> and I was like, "I'm getting something." <laughs> like, even if it sucks, I'm getting something. Collectively, all these put together might be as good as fearless. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's like we're going for volume here. Fuck <laughs> off with your logic. Uh, so I have here a movie that a. Uh, Harrison from the Grief Burrito podcast uh, had told me is worth my time. He could be wrong, um, but this is a movie that I have been wanting to see for odd reasons over the years. Uh, that would be Lawless, which is uh, largely known as the movie where Guy Pierce has no eyebrows. Uh, and uh, Shia LaBeouf uh, apparently cold clocked Tom Hardy on the set and knocked him the fuck out. <laughs> oh, dang. Way to go. Uh, and Sir then Dominic. I have a uh, Marky Mark film shooter because oh, yes. I listened to a podcast the other day and uh, the the uh, the ratio of heads exploded to heads not exploded in the movie is cozy. Or it's like, you know, if, if, if we're going to have people's <laughs> heads exploding in movies, it's like we, we want to make sure that that number is is greater than, than the people's whose heads do not explode. <laughs> uh, so I was like, you know what? I'm sure this sucks, but at least I get to see some heads get exploded. <laughs> <laughs> anyway sean uh, parker uh getting... oh to answer your question that didn't need to be answered yeah uh black mask 2 came out in 2002 so it looks like jet lee was probably busy making the 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 one two punch of hero and the unforgettable cradle to the grave at the time oh my god sean parker that's <laughs> that's that's an episode for a future day that you are most certainly so. invited to talk about because uh, okay cradle to the grave uh directed by that fella whose name i always forget but it's the same fella that he directed what i call the it's like a trilogy there may even be more but i call it the kung fu hip-hop connection trilogy Oh, yeah. Where it's Romeo Must Die, Exit Wounds, and Cradle to the Grave. And all three of these movies have that in common, where it's like we're trying to smash the hip-hop world together with the Ooh, kung fu world. Exit Wounds. <laughs> I, I'm trying to remember. I think the guy's last name is uh, Bart Kowiak. Okay. It's like Andres Bart Kowiak or something. And, and he was responsible for all three then. Yeah, he he was responsible for this. <laughs> uh, there were diminishing returns. <laughs> I remember Romeo Must Die was not too bad. It features some of the the most laughable wire work I've ever seen in my life, Sean. <laughs> do, do you remember what I'm talking about? Oh, you mean like the physics of how Jet Li is able to take out the last bad guy? <laughs> no, no, I mean that that's 
See, that's not bad. That's that's fantastic. What, yeah. what I'm talking about <laughs> is uh, there's the football game where Anthony Anderson. Uh, this would be heavy set Anthony Anderson, not before he slimmed down. This was this was when he was funnier because, <laughs> because he had a bigger head and he got to say things like "put these nuts in your mouth," <laughs> "put the nuts in your mouth." Um, that's the best scene in that movie, by the way. Put these nuts in your mouth. But uh, the football game, there is a wire shot where Jet Li is like ping ponging off of people on on this grassy field. And you can, like, literally see him, like, sitting on the wire rig like it's a swing set. Oh. <laughs> like, it literally looks like a, a small man, like, swinging, like, on an invisible swing set. It looks god-awful. Wow. I mean, I mean, I would put the wire work and exit wounds above above Romeo Must Die, where we get to see all 240 pounds of Steven Seagal swinging on wires. <laughs> nothing that large is meant to be airborne i'm sorry well unless you're brock lesnar and you're doing a shooting star press onto your fucking head (laughs) well on that note to uh kind of somehow justify all this as not a crazy segue uh how would you what would you think of the wire work in fearless i think it is highly appropriate uh, for mm-hmm. the for the style and tone of the of the film and the subgenre within which we're working, um, it is fanciful by Western standards. However, it very seldom draws attention to itself. Uh, it's largely practical in its application. Like it doesn't feel extraneous. Like that's that's one of the worst examples of wire work is when you're throwing people on wires when it really isn't warranted. Where it's yeah. like you just did that because you wanted to do it. <laughs> it's like, and also, wire wire work is an art form unto itself. Like it takes training, it takes a particular set of skills to get it to look and feel right. Um, and thankfully, Jet Li, having worked in the wuja genre for for so many decades, like is well versed in this sort of stuff. So he he knows how to he knows how to like find the harmony with the wire harness and stuff. Um, I think it looks quite good from time to time. It is. It is an acquired taste for certain. Uh, it's not my particular taste. However, it never felt egregious in this film. Like probably some of the most audacious examples of it are mostly relegated to the first half of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, like in particular, the fight on top of the the uh, elevated platform with the, the right with the Zhao character. There's there's kind of a like mid air pivot, completely change direction moment. <laughs> for sure little little physics defying things it's like sir i have played half-life 2 i have an idea of how physics work <laughs> <laughs> but overall uh for this genre this is pretty grounded yes uh it's fairly grounded by by wuja standards um and in particular they they show restraint like i said where it's kind of warranted um at mm-hmm. times it is the times where I found it most obnoxious, and you can fight me on this if you want, Sean Parker, I don't know, but um, the O'Brien scene, um, it's it's mm. a it's a bit much, and I feel like there was a a different way to tackle that scene. So the scene that I'm <laughs> to... you mean like the the three hundred pounds of like pure man being flung around effortlessly and uh, supported by Jet Li's frame as he like does a full-on belly flop on <laughs> yeah yeah he 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 catches his 300 pound frame with his curled toes like not even his whole body not even his whole lower body just his curled toes prevents his head <laughs> from being driven into the spikes 
Um, it, oh yeah, that moment. <laughs> yeah. The, but no, you're you're talking about like him putting his elbow up into his throat, right? Right. At least that was like, you know, two points of support. Well, I mean, the 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 actor who portrays O'Brien is a uh, Nathan Jones, who I mostly know as a failed uh, WWF experiment. Um, he's a he's curiosity because he's like almost a legit seven footer, um, and he made a huge splash in the film world. Uh, acting opposite some of the most prominent actors and martial artists of the time, um, mm-hmm. but then when he when they inserted him into uh, WrestleMania uh, at the very last second, like he he comes in I think to assist the Undertaker, like nobody gave a shit, nobody gave a shit, and he his his wrestling skill at the time was anemic, but if you just look at the guy, like from an aesthetic standpoint, he's incredible. Like, he's nearly seven feet tall, if not seven foot on the nose. He's fucking jacked. Yeah. So, like, for a, for a movie actor, he was a much better fit than he was a wrestler. His career tanked as a wrestler. But for mm. fuck's sake, I mean, he got to be the big guy in Troy uh, that gets killed in one shot by Brad Pitt. Uh, he got to act opposite Tom, uh, Tony Ja in, uh, yeah. in Tom Yong-Gung, which I – this is an example of adjusting the choreography – working working with the actors and finding the right way to go about the scene because his scenes with Tony Ja are far superior to his scene with Jet Li. I hate to say that, but it's true. But within the span of like three or four years, he did all of this. He he got to act opposite Brad Pitt, Tony Ja, and Jet Li. And then he got to headline his own movie in Thailand where uh, I think they feed him hot peppers and he goes Hulk on people. It's like a it's like a family movie or something. That's I don't playing re- to his strengths there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember the title of the movie, but I, I seem to remember that was the plot where it's like it's a bunch of kids find this random giant in the jungle or something. They feed him chili peppers and he goes. <laughs> you presume- have made me quite curious. I am at least going to check out that trailer. <laughs> <laughs> Please do, Sean Parker. Like if if you find out the title of it, let me know. But. But yeah, uh, the choreography in this particular scene, I felt, was where the wire work gets a little out of hand. Where it's like, I think they, I think, uh, by the way, this uh, Fearless movie uh, was choreographed by Yuan Wu-Ping, who is, of course, one of the the all-time greats uh, in martial arts choreography. Um, I want to say maybe he just didn't quite know what to do with this guy. Uh, because the fact of the matter is, he was green as a professional wrestler. I would imagine he's green as a uh, as a screen fighter as well. Because much like professional wrestling, or acting, or even real fighting, fighting on screen is a totally different beast than fighting for real. Um, so I would imagine this guy maybe wasn't the best at showing restraint. Maybe wasn't the safest to work with being as he's seven feet tall and like 300 fucking pounds. Oh yeah. And like a con, like a former convict on top of that. (laughs) Oh yeah. On on all of those notes, the, uh, the trivia section of INDB on this movie mentions that there's some moment. uh, I don't remember this in the, in the cut that I saw, but there's a scene where he like, apparently picks up and throws an extra to the ground and it went wrong and the the guy got his ribs broken uh during that take because uh, there was just a little bit too much force put into the throw well see there you go see i didn't know that but thanks to sean parker's research just then i think it's safe to assume nathan jones maybe wasn't the safest person to work with 
Um, and I mean, in Thailand, where where the stunt people go fucking balls out and will die for you if you pay them more than five dollars. <laughs> um, like I would God. imagine working with Tony Jaa, who has been confirmed by Scott Adkins and other people who have worked opposite him, hits like a fucking truck. Um, oh boy! I would imagine I on that set. It. <laughs> I would imagine on that set. Tony Jaa was probably like, okay, <laughs> like I'm up for the challenge. Whereas on the set of this film, Fearless, a multi-million dollar Chinese production with, you know, one of one of the like idols of martial arts cinema having to do all these martial arts sequences. It's like, dude, we can't have you hurt Mr. Lee. Like, like we, mm-hmm. we don't have a movie if you hurt Mr. Lee. So we got to be very careful. Yeah, and he's like 40. Yes, when he, made he, this he was not young when they made this. Um, so it, I would imagine it was one of those things where the way they choreographed this scene was largely to prevent the possibility of fiasco or injury. Because mm. as Sean Parker said, that, that scene is not in the director's cut. He never throws an extra. Um, so I assume... Maybe out of respect for the person, they're just like, let's not use this footage. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I would imagine that would be the case. Um, so... I, I think the fanciful wire work here and the kind of absurd use of uh, slow motion, because almost the entire fight is conducted slow motion, was probably just to, to mitigate risk. Mm. Um, and as such, it comes across as slightly anemic. Like, there's very little drama to it. Um, there's very little tension. And, and whenever it gets close to being, like, an actual fight, um, they kind of throw reality out the window. Where, for instance, like, <laughs> when you have this Nathan Jones guy put the diminutive Jet Li in a bear hug. It's like, I'm sorry, that that's that's it. It's uh, over. That's it. <laughs> like, that's the end of it. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry. It's like, I love martial arts movies. I delight in them and their absurdity. But I'm sorry, that math doesn't add up, man. Like, like he grabs you, that's it. <laughs> um, but no, he finds a way out of there with like an eagle claw grip on his ribs or something. He's like, oh! And by the way, Sean Parker, correct, please confirm this with me i'm not even going to challenge you i'm going to ask you to confirm this if you are a herculean white guy in a chinese martial arts film oh, i can you... relate <laughs> yes uh we're not going to have video footage for this but trust me sean parker is fucking jacked <laughs> you look up a picture of nathan jones slap sean parker's face on that that's that's what it is but um as a herculean white man in a Chinese martial arts film, are you not obligated to use the phrase "come on" at least a dozen times in, <laughs> in whatever limited screen time you may have? Oh yeah, it's the unspoken law. <laughs> I fucking swear, every time, every Probably. every Chinese martial arts movie you ever see with a white guy in it, they have to say "come on, come on, come on" <laughs> in between every every beat of choreography. <laughs> I'm looking at you, Twister from Eatmon Two. <laughs> yeah, it, it it is required, and Nathan Jones, I think, uh, certainly qualifies for that because he he he's dropping come ons like <laughs> like it's going out of style. <laughs> um, but one thing I should note about the uh, difference between the director's cut and the theatrical cut here, um, so. I'm not going to talk at length about every single fucking thing. I think this is going to be a more free-form discussion in case you couldn't fucking tell by now. <laughs> but um, Yeah, our plans for coming the movie from A to B went like right out the window as soon as we started talking about 
cradle to the grave. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I I don't need an excuse to talk about cradle to the grave, but thank you for providing one. <laughs> um, so, uh, a major difference uh, between the director's cut and the theatrical cut um, is the the framing of the story. Uh, so, right. if memory serves. The opening of the theatrical cut is the uh, the four-on-one fight, correct? Yes, it's the first three of the fights that happen in the end of the director's cut. Uh, what so a major difference. It, it's a major difference. Uh, so, the yeah, the opening of the theatrical cut is the first three fights of a four-on-one contest uh, that the Hoyanja character is engaged in for the finale of the entire story um and then we cut away from that after the third fight uh, i think we have the title and then we don't come back to that until the very end of the movie to conclude that contest yeah um whereas the director's cut open it, it's like the coldest of fucking cold openings mm. it's just like him looking like a, a hobo like a hairy hobo in the belly of a boat uh looking real sad because uh, he has the jade charm that his daughter had wanted to give to him but unfortunately never actually got to hand over to him and we just see him like headed to the the mountain village that he'll reside in for the whole middle portion of the movie oh okay so yeah the director's cut actually opens with his his journey to that village via this boat and then we cut back to his childhood and uh, a major difference between the director's cut and the theatrical cut is the childhood sequences are much longer Okay. We spend a lot more time in here. If memory serves, there's like uh, some screen time devoted to a subplot wherein his uh, his friend, the business savvy friend of his, uh, Nong uh, Jin Sun, uh, copies the the uh, the Hua Fist like martial arts manual, um, and gives it to to Hole like to to use later on in the film. If memory serves, that's not in the theatrical cut. Um, but it it's one of those things like in its placement in the director's cut it's like why are we still here um, and probably the the largest difference between the director's cut and the theatrical cut is just the uh, the the number of platitudes <laughs> um, mm. and more and moral messages hammered home um, by virtually every character in the story uh, such that it gets oh, a boy. little it gets a little bit tedious not gonna lie the character of moon uh, the the blind gal. Mm-hmm. she's not a character sean parker like she she is a, a device she's a device that you put quarters in and she spits out platitudes <laughs> <laughs> oh. i mean that's just my feeling on it i mean she does have some character she does like relate to hull uh on some level but for the most part like every line of dialogue she has it's just like do you do you like do you like talk about the weather or like do you talk about like things that don't have to do with like living a good wholesome life or like living no, in once a... you once you lose your eyesight you can only speak in like mystic terms you know you just get completely divorced from like the immediate reality you see yeah <laughs> uh, but one of the things that happens early on in the film is we get introduced to Hoyan Jia's uh, father who is played by one of my personal favorites uh, Colin Cho uh, you may remember him from The Matrix Reloaded as uh, the character Seraph. Um, oh, no kidding. Yeah, uh, he has played opposite Jet Li many a time. But he has uh, sunglasses in that entire movie, doesn't he? Yes, he does. Okay, 
hard, hard, hard to place the face when his eyes are covered. Yeah, he. I mean, he actually has a slightly like chameleonic uh, quality to him because uh, he, like I said, most often portrays villains, like nasty villains. Um, I, th- I can see I, that. I think he was. I think he acted opposite Jet Li in like My Father the Hero or something, or My Father is a Hero, one of those. Um, but anyway, he usually plays bad guys. Uh, one of my favorites was uh, uh, the villain in Flashpoint, uh, opposite Donnie Yen. Mm. Um, he got his ass kicked on that set. <laughs> like, he got his ass kicked so bad he went. He, I think he was pretty public about it. He was like, "Donnie Yen beat the shit out of me," <laughs> and I don't know that I want to do any more of these types of scenes. <laughs> um but i i like him as as an actor he has a good presence about him he has a a really good uh intensity about him yeah and in in fact most of his role in this film he doesn't have a lot of screen time but he's kind of just like the stern father figure that the the story for hoyanja is that his father is a martial artist runs a martial arts school but he doesn't want his own son to learn said martial arts um they they pay lip service to the fact that he's asthmatic so it's like it's probably not a good idea in the early 1900s for an asthmatic to do martial arts like that could kill you um (laughs) but additionally it seems like maybe he just doesn't he doesn't want his son to take up take up the mantle i guess or something um but he's like a super stern father figure but there's a lesson imparted to hold um early on in the film where we have this contest in the public square uh, where his father uh, basically has like a test of masculinity or strength, uh, a martial martial arts acumen between him and this other fella, uh, where his father stops short of like de- delivering a killing blow and loses the fight as a result of that, like of, of showing mercy to his opponent. Um, and that kind of serves as like a, a through line for basically all the lessons that the Hoi Jiao character will learn throughout the film. Um, but again, in the director's cut, it seems like that message is, is a little bit more ham fisted. Like it's like hammered the fuck home. And then the, 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 <laughs> the filial piety on display throughout the story is intensified in the director's cut where it's like um, penance is one of the biggest themes uh, in the director's cut of the film that I think is only loosely attended to in the theatrical cut. Yeah, it's there, but I could see it being way, way further. Yeah, it, it's certainly there in the theatrical cut, but I want to say in the director's cut, like, when, when Hoyan Jia returns to Tianjin, like, he, he goes and visits, like, every single person that he had beef with or had problems with and, like, kowtows to them, essentially. Like, he, right. like he visits the wife of the master who he killed. Um, he visits a couple of his former students who kind of, became criminals after he left town and left the school and whatnot. Like, um, another huge thing is that, uh, the, the Jao character who we should probably talk about, um, the, the young bully uh, who beat him up when he was really young. And then he has a fight with later on, he actually comes back and they have more story with him in the director's cut. Oh, interesting. I was wondering, like, it feels like the kind of thing that was a little bit of a loose end in the theatrical yeah, it most certainly does feel like that. However, like I'll I'll go on record right now and just say that I I think in subsequent viewings of this film I probably will just go back to the theatrical cut uh, because honestly a lot of the additional material um, in the director's cut just some of it, it it's not necessarily extraneous. It's just like it doesn't 
jive with me on a personal level. It feel it feels like maybe it doesn't need to be there, or it feels like a little ham fisted. Like for instance, the actual opening of the director's cut is not the boat. It's actually a modern day scene where uh, Michelle Yeoh, like Michelle Yeoh as Michelle Yeoh, um, uh, Kyle, my regular co-host, would refer to her as the the Malaysian fox. <laughs> uh, it's actually Michelle Yeoh in like a conference. Uh, speaking to an international crowd and uh, lobbying for wushu being added to the olympic program like as as a as an event um and then she says let me tell you a story about a hundred years ago <laughs> it seems like such a weird choice as like a framing do they return to that does it end on that no we never come back to that <laughs> That's so bizarre. <laughs> yeah, I mean that this this is a thing that happens sometimes where it's like as as much as we all like to think that you know we we have a a well-rounded worldview and whatnot. It's like you know this story comes from the other side of the planet. Yeah, with, with I, thousands of years of its own history. So, but then they go from from that scene to like this flashback to him on the boat, which is divorced from any like emotional connection to knowing what he just went through because you haven't seen him lose his family you just see him moping on the boat with a beard and you're like this is our hero yeah what's going on and also he's <laughs> shot he's shot from angles that make it difficult to even discern that it's jet lee that you're looking at <laughs> i in the shot of the the u.s version of the film i also had a moment where i was like wait is this Jet Li? oh wait he's flashing back to his daughter yeah it is it's like the most non-jet lee jet lee has ever looked in that profile shot on the i mean it, it does need to be said i mean ronnie Yu does have an extensive background in like fantasy and horror films uh so i want to say they did have some pretty talented makeup technicians working on this film uh, because they do age him sl- slightly uh, he does have like multiple wigs that he wears throughout the film. He didn't, he didn't grow that real beard. <laughs> I don't know that he's capable, even if he tried. <laughs> um, the the like the the patchy like just like sprinkling of stubble that they have on him actually looks like somebody just took like I don't know like a sharpie and ran it across his face. <laughs> so that's maybe not the best work from the makeup techs, but um, th- there is some age makeup on display in the film and some and some good like. Bru- bruising and blood makeup and stuff so i want to oh, say yeah. ronnie you probably had some good people working on that but yeah when he isn't in like full-on harry hobo mode it's like oh that's Jet Li. i didn't know <laughs> like I, I honestly couldn't have told you that but yeah uh, from a narrative standpoint i have to agree with you sean parker it does feel like an odd choice to start the story there like the the intended director's cut starts in the weirdest of fucking places and it doesn't really emotionally connect to that much i mean they do sprinkle some shots in like earlier footage of the daughter showing that there's some sort of connection between the totem that he's holding like the the little uh, bag holding the jade uh, mm-hmm. item we do like insert some shots of her face like before she died so it's like I guess it's reasonable to suggest that the viewer can understand that there will be information relayed to us later, like about the connection between that item and, and this young girl. 
Um, but it's but, not quite as much of a hook as seeing three exceptional fight scenes, like, right off the bat. <laughs> well, especially when the first minutes of your movie are talking up how awesome Wushu as an art form is. It's like, oh, yeah. instead of showing what that why it's awesome, let's show a mopey guy in, in the belly of a, a stinky old ship. <laughs> 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 it, it's an odd choice but it was a choice and apparently this was the intended cut of the movie um I, like i said i don't know that i'll be coming back to it again but um long story short uh the the childhood stuff uh mostly what happens is uh he sees his father lose and he's bummed out about it so one of the disciples of the master who defeated his father who is like a full head taller than him uh, challenges him to a fist fight to be like who has the superior kung fu um and uh young ho yanja gets his ass whipped and a major departure from the director's cut and the direct and the uh, theatrical cut here is that they have a rematch in the director's cut if memory serves that does not happen in the theatrical cut um and i'm talking about like a rematch in childhood like hmm. uh, if memory serves in the theatrical cut we just cut from young ho yanja training um, to adulthood. Yes. And then they have a rematch as adults. But in the director's cut, they have a rematch as children, and he wins this time. Like, oh, interesting. Like, like he completely stomps the other kid. And this kind of makes sense. I, I Again, I, I kind of prefer the expedience of the theatrical cut. But in terms of ha- hammering home a theme, one of the major themes of the story is vengeance and and the endless cycle of vengeance. Yeah. So we're planting the seeds here where it's like they're going back and forth trading victories over each other. And when when we come back to them both as adults, we can see that they both kind of traveled similar paths where they both became obsessed with avenging that previous loss. And it's like, when does this end? It's like, right. The message of the movie is that it doesn't until everybody's dead, which is really not good. (laughs) It's funny. (laughs) The number of characters as the movie goes on where they're introduced as being undefeated and it's like wait how how many people can like can, can be undefeated for this many years on this like general like traveling and fighting circuit like it kind of seemed like it's the default that they had to throw in for anyone that gently meets up with to be like well they have to be at least as good as the last person so they have to be undefeated now <laughs> i mean this this is this is the problem of of virtually any story of the sort where it's like it's like a I don't know telling any any long form story that involves a lot of conflict and stuff. It's like you you it's like the Dragon Ball effect, man. It's like well Frieza could blow up a planet with with barely like barely breaking a sweat. It's like well where do we go from there? <laughs> it's like it's like well I think it would probably be a good idea if we stopped talking about power, power levels because I don't think that's relevant anymore because I don't think assi- assigning a numerical value to being able to blow up a planet with a blink is really is really going to amount to much. But yeah, it's it's the never ending upscale of power sets. That's like I, I guess if the first guy was undefeated, I guess everybody has to be undefeated. <laughs> just they just never cross paths with each other. I guess. Yeah, it's it's kind of the the Simpsons, the Malibu Stacy thing, where it's just like, but she has a new hat. <laughs> it's like he's undefeated. Well, the last guy was. It's like, but he has a cool hat. <laughs> like, therefore, he's more dangerous. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, we get to see Hoyanja uh, basically covertly train himself, um, which I don't think this works in real life. Like, just mm. uh, 
I mean, there have been numerous stories told in this fashion where I think there's that uh, anime and manga One Punch Man where it's like he does 100 push-ups a day or something and then becomes able to kill anything with one punch. And then there's, uh, was it? The, I think it's the book of Luther, Luther Strode or something Luther Strode. It's a comic book where it's this nerdy kid finds like a handbook and reads it and follows the follows the basic workout regimen in this like this like charles atlas book and then becomes a like a nathan jones looking motherfucker that can kill anyone with with one punch <laughs> um, but that's basically what hoyan ja does he reads he reads the the whole the hua fist handbook uh trains himself by punching rocks and then we flash forward to adulthood and he is now gently <laughs> um, but we do get our first uh taste of him having to pay penance as a child because as a result of his fight uh, in the director's cut i don't remember if this was in the theatrical cut um he is forced to like write scripture like confuses oh, yes. doctrine like a whole bunch of times that's in there and yeah this is something that will be revisited numerous times throughout the film um, but then we quickly cut ahead to his adulthood and now he's gently uh, they do mention that he had a wife, but she died. But now he has a daughter without a wife, and his mom's... yeah, it's like it's like a big, it's like a lot. It's like whoa, okay. And then he's like the happiest, like most jovial, goofy guy. And it's like, wait, sounds like he has kind of a tragic backstory that we missed out on, and they're just like brushing under the rug really quickly. And like, <laughs> he's still a boy, <laughs> like all in every facet of his personality. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It is unusual. Like I like the filmmaking. Like I like the, the cinematography, and and I like personally, it, like in a martial arts movie like this, where the whole reason we're watching this is to see Jet Li do Jet Li shit. Like I do kind of appreciate just having this exposition dump in the form of him sitting down with his mother and just like them talking about his life over the past couple of decades. Yeah, there's a there's a few of those in this movie. I don't know if it's if it, if the version I saw had like, you know, the much maligned like dub titles, kind of felt like it might have, because some of the dialogue was just like really on the nose and kind of hokey. <laughs> and just was like speaking to the audience. It's like okay, all right. I uh, I want to say it's a it's a little little of column A and a little column B. I, like the script probably. in this movie, especially in the second half, is not its strongest suit. Like I said, the the movie in the second half in particular kind of devolves into... He becomes less of a character and more of just like a representative of the Chinese people. Yeah. Which is where the, the politics of the production, unfortunately, kind of rear their ugly head. Yep. And it, as much as I, I would like to ignore it, I just I just can't. Where it's like a lot of this does seem like kind of propaganda-ish. And it's nothing that like at the time... Like I, I noticed what you're talking about in the in the theatrical version too. Like there was a little bit. It was kind of like ah, it's hard not to see it now. And I didn't. It didn't click at all when this first came out. It felt like oh, I don't see anything wrong with this. There's, there's no propaganda here. Uh, but the times have changed a bit. Yeah, I, I actually I'm pretty much in the same boat as you. 2006 was a very different time, um, and I, I think seeing the things we've seen in more recent days it's it's like impossible to ignore now going back to and yeah like a lot of the dialogue in the second half of the movie in particular just like feels like i don't know 
speaking directly to to the Chinese sentiment and the Chinese audience and being like, this is how you be a good citizen. This <laughs> is like, yeah. Live, oh, live, yeah, live for your people and for your nation. Be be a cog in the machine because <laughs> that's what's expected and that's what's good for everyone. Because even the ultimate fate of the character, it's like it's supposed to be this like dramatic like emotional moment but when you really think about what's going on it's like ooh, <laughs> like i i don't know i don't know if this is a heroic death i feel like this is just this is incredibly sad like he's yeah. kind of resigning himself to this this fate of being a representative of the people and by extension a martyr of the people it's like to what end man <laughs> like like really yeah. what what did you gain from that other than losing your life and oh yeah really disappointing that blind chick that kind of had a thing for you <laughs> by the way in in the early 1900s i don't imagine it would be easy to find a husband for you for yourself as a blind woman in a small village um, so, it's like, so it's like i will wait for you oh shit he's dead well oh well yeah <laughs> like, they kind of make up for it with like this sort of i don't know if it was a dream sequence or like complete fantasy or if it was like something that she was seeing in her mind back in the village but they, both Jet Li and the and the moon character were very clearly green screened into this environment <laughs> for the final shots of the film so yeah. it is a little bit like okay what, what does this mean exactly uh I, she has a line earlier in the film where she says she can like see into the hearts of people so right which like, kind of like made me to believe maybe that's what was going on there she has like force powers to some extent like she she this was like her somehow knowing that he passed away like hundreds of miles away from her but she's okay with it but she's also crying and he's he's in some he's in some like spectral angelic plane doing apparently he's his fate is to forever do martial arts forms he can't stop oh, oh no <laughs> it's his own form of personal hell <laughs> it's what like, he signed up for as being a, a representative for yeah, the, just uh, like he just has to continually this. whirl his arms around he's like oh my god i can't stop <laughs> that really is dark what a what a downer of an ending if you think about it that way. If you think about it that way, yes. But um, what did you think about the, the, the Jow fight um, as, as adults, like on the elevated platform? Because that's like an early highlight of the movie in some ways. It is. It's, it's pretty cool. Uh, there's there's some good stuff in there. Um, I'd say just like the sheer spectacle of it, it's like it's kind of the, the set piece that kind of leaps to mind it's just comically tall tower it's like how is this how is this reasonable for them to like construct for this one-off bout um how does it stand and not sway <laughs> but it's cool <laughs> uh you get that great zoom out like matte painting shot of the whole town which makes it all worth it um yeah it's, it's a it's a fun sequence and oh my god the, the <laughs> so like the whole the whole character arc of jet Li being like this hot-headed fighter who's like you know he's gonna like take it too far one day and like get somebody killed which eventually happens it really seemed like it was gonna happen in this scene when the guy like tumbles off the tower and just like face plants into the stone <laughs> ground it's just like you're like oh whoa that's way more brutal than i thought like this was gonna get and then like he just kind of gets up and like angrily dusts himself off his cronies are like, are you okay? And he's like, I'm fine. 
that, that part is hilarious because like he should be so dead <laughs> like, like that's worse than like pretty much anything else that like happens to a human in this movie and he's fine and not only does he does he live in the director's cut he has more scenes later on. <laughs> i mean like there, there's a there's the movie spl where uh it's a Donnie Yen plays like this hot-headed cop who is reformed by the time we're introduced to him. But his story is that he was this hot-headed cop that he punched a dude so fucking hard one time he knocked him literally stupid. <laughs> like, and there, and after like forevermore, he's paying penance to that guy. Like he, he like <laughs> hangs out with him and he's like his, I don't know, he's his financial support because the guy, his mental faculties are so far gone that he he can't get a job and stuff. Oh jeez. Um, but with this guy, it's like yeah, the the bump that this this actor has to take on a stone floor, like he hits his fucking forehead off the gr- his head yeah, bounces that's off. The, the that's the gr- first point of contact, and I don't even remember if he's bloodied. He no, he's up. he's not even bloodied. But <laughs> as hilarious as that is, I I think I think the the conceit here is that this sequence is traditional wuja. Like this sequence, yeah. like like even stylistically, the Zhao character, his arc is that he got beat up by Hoi Anja again in the director's cut. Um, uh, in the theatrical cut, it's more like Hoi Anja got, got his ass kicked, and then uh, goes on a training spree for decades, and then comes back as an adult and beats him. Yeah. In the director's cut, they've both traded wins and losses. But anyway, the story behind the character delivered in like one line of exposition is just that. Uh, he traveled all over China learning martial arts, and now he's back in town to whip Hoyanja's ass. Um, and so, what I mean by this being like a, a representative of traditional wuja is that we get to see like an exhibition of multiple like styles of kung fu, like all embodied in the singular character. So it's like we we get like thirty second exhibitions of all these different styles. Like we get to see like an eagle claw, we get to see a horse oh, yeah. stance. And we get to see like all these different styles at play, and even the wire work here is so much more audacious than some of the other stuff in the in the movie. And even the lighting, it's like it's very bright. It's mm-hmm. almost obscenely bright at times, uh, such that the green screen of the background is a, uh, in HD, not the prettiest. <laughs> <laughs> um, and even the style of choreography, as violent as the fight gets, I mean, for fuck's sake, a man falls thirty feet onto his fucking forehead onto a stone floor. Um, <laughs> It, in like in like like old old like chop sake type movies like Shaw Brothers type movies and stuff, bloodletting wasn't wasn't an all the time kind of thing. It's like it's more reserved for like more heightened circumstances. Uh, so it's it's like one of those things where it's like, hang on, like why didn't we just have like fucking chalk dust flying all over the place? <laughs> like like if you're going to do it traditional, like you may as well do it like that, where it's like it's totally bloodless and the wire work is all over the place. Um, it's very safe is what it comes across as it's like mm-hmm. the the stakes never it's meant to be a fun sequence and it's not until a little bit later that we get to the point where it's like oh things are about to get dark like yeah they do a major tonal shift not late not long after so it is effect it is effective the the way they do it in this part yeah i like i like the lighting change because uh, that's something that seems to be pretty consistent across ronnie Yu's uh filmography where he he takes a, a page out of some of the some of his contemporaries handbooks 
um like uh jung uh emo and uh oh yeah it does kind of have that vibe of like a hero or house of flying daggers kind of look in that uh, absolutely that moonlit restaurant fight lots of impressionistic lighting lots of artistic liberties taken with the lighting schemes and it, it translates very well into the like matching the tone of the story because like we get a whole flurry of sequences of the Hoi Jiao character just beating all sorts of ass in the town square and just like racking yeah. racking up trophies essentially and then we yeah. get that sequence where he he invites a whole crowd of people to come at him at once and the during this montage the 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 the, the lighting during the day is continually darkening like and even the color palette of his his garb is more dark um and when he's fighting that whole crowd of people like they take special care to show that like he is knocking people's teeth out and like blood is pouring out of people's mouths he's being very very rough with them um so it's like a, a visual cue that's like oh he's he's getting he's he's darth vadering or something uh, <laughs> like, i think they i think they clean up a little bit of that in the uh, theatrical cut they did yeah. I did notice it was it was heightened quite a bit in the director's cut because the the sequence with the crowd of people charging him is significantly longer, and I think there's even like kind of like an ambient rumble on the soundtrack during this sequence. Oh, interesting. So again, it's like the the themes are are more obvious in the director's yeah. cut, more explicit. Uh, it, but, it would make sense because like here he's like really getting full of himself. He's like turning into like peak arrogant, gonna get somebody killed, Jet Li. Yeah, you underestimate my power. Like the, <laughs> <laughs> the guy signing the death waivers is finally gonna get like a, his purpose fulfilled. Yes. Which, by the way, am I wrong or did that guy like stay the same in the twenty year or so time jump that happened from when he saw his father fighting? Like, I feel like it was the exact same guy, looking the same age, same like long scraggly beard. <laughs> <laughs> they they changed the beard but like his his tone and his 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 energy level is exactly the same <laughs> so it's like you only get like one shot to see him with the gray beard but yeah it's like exactly oh, okay. the same guy. i guess like, he has like a major patrick stewart energy or he just like probably looked like that when he was like 30 and then just like stay that way for a good 50 years good god i mean the perfect example of that patrick stewart like if you look at him in like the early next gen era and then head into like the x-men era it's like hang on did any time pass in between these eras like th- this was decades like it's look he looks he's exactly just cryogenically frozen between each take you see <laughs> i mean if, if you're really looking to extend your career look into it folks <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, in the director's cut, uh, amidst all of this, by the way, uh, he keeps going to his buddy's restaurant and racking up bills upon bills upon bills, which oh, becomes yeah. a, a constant element of the story where it's like his he's relentlessly overspending and everyone around him keeps telling him, you're fucking it up, son. You're fucking it up. <laughs> but um, he keeps growing his posse. Like anyone who like kneels for him is like, oh, yeah, come on, jump on my tab. Yes. Like literally anyone. He doesn't even vet them uh at all it's just like if they show up they're they're in um and he's like forming his own foot clan complete with foot clan garb <laughs> but um yeah and, he and keeps... levels of intelligence amongst his soldiers yeah uh, that's another element is that he keeps being told that his uh his gang uh, it's actually his school but his gang essentially are uh racking up expenses across town we don't really know what that means, but basically these are a bunch of shitheads who are causing trouble around town, 
and because he's their master uh, in this culture he has he bears some responsibility for that um, which includes paying their bills for like property damage and whatnot Uh, but things escalate because uh, he is told that you've beaten everybody in town but you haven't beaten Master Chen who is basically another martial arts master in town who he has not defeated and by this time his garb is like completely black and like I said like his I hate to say it, but his goon squad do look like the Foot Clan without hoods, basically. <laughs> like, everybody's dressed from head to toe in black, and they look like none of them look particularly bright, but they're all kind of menacing. Um, but basically, he starts a campaign of harassing Master Chin in public, trying to call him out for a fight. And he's like, nah, not today. His yeah. his introduction to like challenging him is like, I'm just going to surprise him by like trying to bludgeon him with a coffin battering ram. <laughs> <laughs> a coffin battering <laughs> yeah they they like the the utter disrespect on display here they both knock this coffin back and forth between each of them and you gotta wonder are these occupied boxes or That's what are I they said. available I was like, somebody made those coffins and somebody might be in there man <laughs> you guys are like in public right now you gotta be careful <laughs> um but things escalate because uh, one of Jet Li's uh, disciples gets his ass beat and he's hauled out in front of him. By the way, there's an extra scene in the director's cut where um, Ho Yan Jia is continually made aware that his bills are racking up and his students kind of suck. Um, so we get the scene in the director's cut where he's watching all of his disciples train and they all suck. Like they're all just like <laughs> laboring in all their movements and when they're doing drills, like form drills and stuff. They're all out of sync. <laughs> and he just gets up and he beats the shit out of like half of them. <laughs> so it's like his heel turn is like 100% explicit in the director's cut. Like there's there's no room left for interpretation. It's like, no, he is he is a bad motherfucker at this point. Um, but it is kind of fun watching his disciples train because they do a good job here of uh, when we see his father training, like during the childhood sequences when we see his father putting his disciples through form training and whatnot, they're like lockstep with each other. Like mm. it's all perfect. So it's like, it, it shows oh, like a, yeah. a difference in their teaching, teaching methodologies and their, their vetting process for their students. Um, so it's like, yeah, he's, he is skilled, but he's an irresponsible teacher. Um, and irresponsibility is a big part of the character at this point in the story. But long story short, uh, things reach a fever pitch with Master Chin because uh, the student of Ho Yan Jia, whose ass got beat, uh, attributes it to Master Chin. There's more story to be told there, but Ho Yan Jia is like, fuck it, I'm out. <laughs> so he, he just heads out. And he's like, I'm going to find this Master Chin. I'm going to beat his ass. It's like, eye for an eye, motherfucker. Tooth for tooth. Um, so he heads to his buddy, uh, Nong Jin Soon's uh, beautiful restaurant, by the way. Some of the things on the table here, I actually had to pause the movie and get up and just like make some fried rice for myself. There are like, some great like food shots and just like cooking moments sprinkled throughout this movie. Absolutely, especially like when we're putting like lard or whatever in the in the wok and the blind <laughs> gal is making eggs and stuff. Yeah. And I was like, mm, I gotta get up, I gotta get up and make some eggs <laughs> at 10 p.m. But um, yeah, the the restaurant is an absolutely gorgeous set and they make wonderful use of it but uh it's master chin's birthday by the way yeah <laughs> this scene is it's just all kinds of uncomfortable it just everything just feels so wrong it's just like no stop stop yeah Turn away. yeah Figure this out later <laughs> <laughs> 
But no, it's got to happen tonight. But first, I have to have a bunch of booze before I get to get to throwing hands at people. Uh, so, uh, Jet Li is sitting down by himself, like surrounded by all. He's like flanked by all of his students. He's drinking alone, but with like a posse. Yes, yeah, it's a very intimidating move. But like the the rate at which he is pouring, like the rate at which at which he is refilling this this glass, it's like. Dude, you might as well, you might want to slow down, buddy. Especially if you plan on like getting into a fucking fight. <laughs> but uh, basically, uh, he harasses Master Chin's like uh, I think it's like his stepson. You know, maybe he's just trying to get on the even playing field with him. It's like I'm going to get as drunk as this guy is on his birthday, so that there's some honor in this like horrible thing I'm about to do. I mean, that is true. Like we do see him like enjoying the festivities, and he is getting served a lot of drinks. So maybe <laughs> he's like, I got a lot to make up for. <laughs> Um, but yeah, uh, long story short, they they do prepare for a fight, but not before a uh, tearful confrontation between Nong Jin Sun and uh, Ho Yan Jia, where uh, basically Nong like disowns him as a friend because he's like basically Ho is being a complete jackass and saying like everybody clear out of this restaurant that I don't own because I have to beat this guy's ass, and it's just like. On what planet does that make sense, sir? Oh, also, a restaurant at which I owe massive debts to that I massive haven't paid. Debts to. <laughs> but somehow, everybody complies, everybody leaves, um, and the friendship is tarnished, it is now ruined, and Hall just will not back down. And then uh, the lighting goes full-on impressionistic, like, horror movie lighting, where it's just yeah. bathed in these sickly greens, and there's, like, a lightning storm going on. And Sean Parker, for my money, I think this is the most masterful martial arts sequence in the whole movie. Um, that's my yeah, that's my I, take I, on I could, things. I I can see that. Like it's got a it's got a unique vibe from anything else in the film. There's like there there it is it is just scary. Just like these two titans going at it. One of whom is driven by revenge the other is driven by having his birthday party fucked up <laughs> and like anytime like and also like i think this is the first time that we see like bladed weapon combat is that right uh it's the first time we see whole chronologically at least maybe <laughs> it's the first time we see whole having a weapon uh, okay. because he does have a sword fight with somebody during the montage but he himself has a cane gotcha so he's okay. not he's not wielding a bladed instrument himself yeah. so yes so like, this is the first time makes it's like it feel different yeah like, the stakes this, are higher what is the end result that they're aiming for here uh and like tables are exploding <laughs> at the merest touch of a blade uh <laughs> so it does give the whole scene like a lot of tension as like far as like what level of injury they're gonna inflict on each other in this and it's pretty it's and it's it's pretty gnarly as far as like the film goes um like he messes up <laughs> poor master chin um not the most sympathetic of characters but still got to feel a little bad for him given the circumstances and with knowledge you glean later on <laughs> about what actually happened to the disciple <laughs> yeah uh to quote the wedding singer information that would have been useful to me yesterday <laughs> um yeah, this is why you don't leave conversations early, folks. <laughs> this is why you don't pull a Batman and, and ditch Commissioner Gordon before he's finished telling you the story. Um, <laughs> right. 
but yeah, th- this this fight is is gnarly, as Sean Parker had said. Uh, it it is probably bu- far and away the most violent of any of the fights in the film. It has a different level of intensity to it because of again the the lighting, and and just the the tone of it. Like both guys are just winging these swords at each other, like they're playing for keeps. Um, and it is a Chinese hardcore match in the form of like every prop in the room being implemented at some point and or exploded. Oh yeah, <laughs> all those jars of wine. Like he gets gently uses the guy's head to like crack open probably a good dozen or more <laughs> clay pots. Yeah, and that and the creativity on display is is kind of incredible. Like they really do use every part of the animal here. Like the the two of them. Are, like the things that they do with their swords and the fact that they take into account uh the craftsmanship of the swords like their their blades deteriorate because they're smashing oh, yeah. into each other and jet lee's sword in fact gets broken at one point and that, that long shot traveling up the blade where you just see like a dozen like deep notches kind of like a oh this is like they're playing for keeps here. <laughs> yeah, and they do something that is it's a tough trick to pull off sometimes in fight choreography. Like case in point um another star wars reference um the the lightsaber duel between anakin and obi-wan uh in revenge of the sith uh there's a weird lull in that fight where it's like i'm all for extended fights like this is my favorite thing in cinema to watch however when it comes to explosions of emotion it burns out like if something if the fight goes too long, then it makes less and less sense for them to continue forward with it, mm-hmm. because the emotional intensity of the moment gives way at some point. And there's that beat in that duel where the two of them are taking refuge uh, from like lava rocks being flung around. And it's just like this would be the part where you have the two of them talk to each other and then reset the conflict somehow where you have one of them try to reason with the other or one of them acknowledge the absurdity of the situation and then you find a way to continue the fury of this of of the conflict they don't do that there's just a beat there it's just like it kind of ruins the moment quite a bit and then on top of that you have the cross cutting between the emperor and yoda and stuff it's like okay now this is just a total fucking mess and i'm totally (laughs) checked out thanks a lot george lucas but um here they do it right where there's a beat in the choreography like there's a lull and we just have these shots with no dialogue showing the wounds they've both incurred on each other. Like, Master Chin has a slice along the top of his head. Not a fun place to be cut, by the way. And uh, <laughs> Ho has a cut on his arm. And we just see the two of them locking eyes with each other. And we see this is where that shot that Sean Parker had mentioned with the blades just being having all these divots cut into them. It Basically, this is doing it right where we take a beat in the choreography and we demonstrate that it's like, oh, like they're paused right now but it's only because they're thinking about their next move. Like they're both a hundred percent invested in killing each other essentially. Uh, so this is called doing it right. Um, but the, where they really like earn all their money, like where they, they really earn all my praise for this sequence is during the last minute of it when they're, they both lose their swords um, and they go into the, like the wine cellar and all the music drops out and all we get are sound effects of jars clay jars being smashed against people's bodies and just grunts and fist noises and the just the intensity and the violence on display it's like oh stop oh oh, no stop (laughs) like please stop and then just the master chin's last moment is beautifully constructed because he's bloodied he's bruised and then not only that his robe gets torn open 
and he it's looks, like the most it's so it's like the most humiliating like end <laughs> yes he, he looks as pathetic and sad and and just like defenseless on his he, birthday on his birthday <laughs> people were just wishing him long long life and good fortune <laughs> he was drunk <laughs> But he just looks as defenseless as possible. Yeah. So it becomes unforgivable what Jet Li does to him because Jet Li does this corkscrew fist move that becomes like his signature death blow that gets revisited a couple times in the film. But it's like the kind of thing where it's like if if he is seeing what we, the viewer, are seeing, there's no excuse. He chose to do what he did. Mm-hmm. Like seeing a person as helpless as that, it's like no, he he had a moment to think about what what came next, and he he just did it. And yeah, he punches him, and then we get this awesome CGI shot of his shoulder blade bulging out of his back because the the force of the corkscrew blow was such that like dislo- it like pressed his heart into his shoulder blade. <laughs> it's like oh. and the heart and the heart one. <laughs> like, get out of the way, shoulder blade. <laughs> get out of the way, skeleton. <laughs> Oh, but yeah, uh, he 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 murdered that man. He he murdered Master Chin, and then the the morning after is just like the worst morning ever. Is <laughs> the worst fucking morning because Hoyan Ja goes across the street after he murders Master Chin and gets drunk, and all of his disciples follow him. And then he wakes up the next morning and he's like chilling in his pajamas, walking around the street in the wee hours of the morning, and then uh, his vomiting all his drinks. <laughs> yeah. Nong pokes his head out the window, and he's like, hey, just so you know, you murdered that dude. He's dead. And he's like, oh, I'm gonna go vomit in the town square. <laughs> so, uh, Jet Li goes and pukes for a bit, and then he does some more wandering around. He finds his way back home, and it's like, oh, shit, my mom and my daughter both got murdered it's, in their sleep, uh, presumably. It's the worst. It's bad and it's intense and Ronnie Yu does not shy away from showing the red stuff. Like like the these people are dead. They they've been sliced. They're dead. And uh, I want to say that uh, one of the housekeepers when seeing the daughter dead is just trying to like keep her job or something cuz she's like she's she's just like throwing a fit behind him like, "Oh my god." <laughs> it's like if I don't make a big show of this, I might lose my job. <laughs> <laughs> I think like, she probably a, has some emotional connection. Some, that. but it's a bit much. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Jet Li goes to Master Chin's house, and like Master Chin's like godson or whatever is there. Yeah, he's like, "Hey, yeah, I did that." And then he slices his own way, throat. Oh yeah, and and this guy, by the way, for all for all of like the responsibility Jet Li carries, we could take one moment and rewind a bit. And say that that godson is the one who planted the seed, and is like, you haven't beat Master Chin, <laughs> as he. <laughs> it's it's kind of he, he bears some responsibility for uh, for events getting to this point. Well, especially for choosing to do a double homicide out of revenge. I mean, did you have to kill the very very little girl? <laughs> like, no, <laughs> no, you or didn't. the or the. Or the elderly mother. Well, no. I mean, for fuck's sake, you could have just killed the dude. Like he was super drunk. Like I mean, <laughs> yeah. he was he was just puking in the town square. I mean, just going off from there. <laughs> but no, instead, take a page decided... out of the out of the books from later in the film and put something in his booze. Yeah, that seemed to work pretty well. <laughs> yeah, go go about it, in, you know, a sleazy, underhanded way or something. You didn't have to kill the guy's elderly mother and like very young daughter. 
to be so ashamed of that that then there would be suicide immediately follow like this guy leaves behind his own wife and daughter over his godfather pass it it's a it, it something doesn't add up something is a little off in, well, in that character's uh reaction yeah he he he, he, <laughs> he constructed some sort of logic in his own brain but it doesn't really work <laughs> i i think the broader message is supposed to be that this element of of maybe Chinese culture is antiquated and should not be carried on. <laughs> maybe. Uh, I mean, it definitely, it definitely, they do have the thing about the contracts, about the death waivers. And how that's like a barbaric practice they should stop. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, it definitely shows like just maybe the logic is a little flawed, but it certainly hammers home like revenge is bad. Like don't dabble in it. It's just going to get all kinds of awful and no one comes out ahead. Yeah, and well, it takes it takes it takes this level of tragedy for uh, for Jet Li to like be brought down to earth and see like this is not the way. Yeah, and to throw salt on the wound, uh, this is where the additional bit of tidbit of information that really would have been useful to him yesterday is imparted to him. Oh, right. Uh, he learns that the disciple who showed up at his doorstep all all hobbled and beaten down. Uh, was beaten by Master Chin because he had insulted one of his concubines. So it was a matter of defending Master Chin's own honor. So the guy brought it upon himself, essentially. Um, so Jet Li basically went out to avenge him for no good reason. Uh, and now people are dead. Awesome. And, I, <laughs> and he's so checked out. Like, he doesn't... He just, like, walks through the group, doesn't acknowledge them at all. And I don't know how this flows in the director's cut, but in the theatrical cut, he just goes through the group and he's just instantly on a boat and has a beard <laughs> that's pretty much how it works actually in the and then guy. and then standing in the sea and falls in the water uh it's kind of ambiguous it's like i don't know if 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 off screen he got shipwrecked <laughs> or if he arrived at his intended random destination and started just falling into the ocean a bit um but this is where we get kind of that classic that classic trope of like the outsider being rescued by people of the earth who nurture them back to health. Yeah, this is where the movie turns into Dances with Wolves or The Last Samurai for just a minute. Oh uh, yeah. In the theatrical cut anyway. In the director's cut, we spend an obscene amount of time in this village. Uh, <laughs> it is it is distressing how long we're in this village. Oh my <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, the flow of the cuts is very similar. Uh, in the director's cut only difference is i think we should have more shots like intervening shots of him on the boat and then him like seeking refuge in the rain with his haggard appearance and stuff so there's there's a few more shots in between him uh falling into the water um and i don't remember this sean parker maybe you can tell me if if this was in the theatrical cut but there's a disturbing moment when he's submerged where he sees spectral visions of his his mother and his daughter and they're like waving to him and saying come on down <laughs> oh man <laughs> i don't remember that in the theatrical cut it was not in the theatrical cut <laughs> it's again this film was produced on the other side of the planet in, from a culture with its own thousands of years of history behind it maybe this has some 
some grounding in in Chinese culture or something, but it feels a little weird to have the ghosts of his dead family saying, "Come on down, buddy. It's all great." Well, maybe that's Ronnie Yu's uh, horror horror film past shining through again. Yeah, uh, but he he does not get a chance to come on down and and uh, to to list off the influences even longer. Uh, not just Dances with Wolves, not just The Last Samurai. Also, this is a bit of Gladiator. Uh, in the form of uh, mm. the Maximus character having those continued visions of uh, Elysium and being reunited with his family uh, in death, essentially. Um, but he does not go to join them just yet, otherwise we wouldn't have the second half of the movie. Uh, he gets pulled up out of the water by the local villagers, and this is where we meet the Moon character, the blind girl who kind of nurses him back to health, um, as well as the entire village. And I remember this sequence in the theatrical vis- version being substantive, but not overlong. The director's cut is, like I said, we spend a long time here. <laughs> like, there's an entire subplot that's added in the director's cut involving an ox that uh, is referenced in the theatrical cut because they call him the ox. Because oh yeah, the- we never get to see that ox. Yes, in, in the, the director's cut, cut, we most certainly do. We hang out with that ox for quite a bit. <laughs> so the we the characters in the village establish a parallel between the village ox and him because he sleeps a lot or something uh in the director's cut he sleeps as much as their ox does yes uh in the director's cut there's an entire subplot dedicated to this ox and this this annoying kid being really emotionally attached to this ox and uh the ox this is where some of the questionable themes of the story start to rear their ugly head where it's like we're trying to establish this parallel between the two characters where this ox is dying and the grandmother, like the village elder, keeps saying, like, oh, the ox has served its purpose. Like, it has done a great service to the community and now it will die. And oh, it can no. be it can be proud of its death now that oh, it has no. served its purpose <laughs> in and, the community. <laughs> and with that parallel to Jet Li, that's that's not looking so good. I know for his future. <laughs> like I said, from a thematic standpoint, it's like I guess that's nice, but at the same time, that's really dark. <laughs> it's like he's he's outlived <laughs> his usefulness. And I keep saying Jet Li instead of the character name. It's fine. But, <laughs> But it also, it does kind of apply in this moment, too, because there is a whole big hoopla at the time about this is going to be Jet Li's like, last martial arts movie. I don't know if you remember that. Uh, I do. I do remember the movie was marketed as such. And in recent, like, after this movie came out, it became a point of controversy because that would not be true. Yes. Not even a little bit. <laughs> like, not even a little bit. Even from a certain point of view, there's really no way you can spin that. Yeah. Like, they tried, like well, they tried last to... historical epic martial art. Even like... that's not true, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very very quickly afterwards, is that reversed. <laughs> yeah. Here, let me, let me list it off. Maybe right he should have said last good martial arts. <laughs> I mean that that may be true because most of these movies I have not seen. But like, if we look at his filmography, Fearless, two thousand six, two thousand seven, The Warlords, we didn't even last a year. <laughs> right, For, that was that was kind of historical epic, right? Yes, or... yes, it was. And then, I mean, that was how they tried to spin it after the fact. Was it's like, oh, oh, I'm not 
I'm not doing any more like wuja or like historical martial arts films anymore. I will still practice martial arts in films, just not in a historical context. But the very next year, The Warlords is most certainly a period film, and it most certainly does feature martial arts. And then the same year, War with Jason Statham, modern day martial arts, but still martial arts. 2008, The Forbidden Kingdom, mm-hmm. Mummy, Tomb of the Dragon Emperor. Hey, that's one that we care not to remember. But yeah, point is. Utter lies. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, what what Sean Parker is referencing here is that maybe if they had followed through on that, like Jet Li has outlived his usefulness as a practitioner of martial arts and cinema or something. But I, I, I think he was like feeling that way. Like there was a there was actually a little interview on the disc that I got. Uh, which is I highly recommend. It's a two-pack of Fearless and Unleashed, with all the versions of both films. Um, but there was a little featurette where he said something along the lines of how, in the late '90s, he was ready to walk away from from film entirely. And there was like this prominent Buddhist figure who told him, "No, you can't do that. That's selfish. You've still got stuff to do." I don't know what it is. Only you know what that is. And Jetley's like, "Oh, I guess you're right." <laughs> and so I, I guess think, you're right, Buddhist think, man. I, think I will maybe... go do Expendables films now. <laughs> <laughs> he probably felt maybe those feelings were coming up again. And maybe he's like, "Now this is the time." And what really hammered it home to me, just connecting the dots a little bit, was the end card of the movie talks about how. How Yunja? <laughs> How's the pronunciation? Ho, ho Yunja. Is ho how, Yunja. I, how, how my ears picked it, it up. It says, uh, spoiler alert, <laughs> Ho Yunja died at 42 years old. Now, Jet Li's that age when he's making this movie. So I think he was, and he also talked to much, a lot about how this film was kind of the story of Jet Li as well. Like he feels like he really put a lot of himself into this movie. So I think the parallels, it felt like this was like be like a, on paper, it's like the perfect, the perfect move to like go out on this note. But of course, Jet Li's, you know, still got a lot of years uh, ahead of him because he didn't get poisoned in a competition and he's still very impressive as a, as a performer. So maybe it was inevitable that that couldn't quite work out. I feel like it was a it was a it was the genuine intention at the time to like this will be it. I mean the scale of the movie suggests that's the case uh because I mean the Warlords is most certainly a very big movie but it's also somewhat of an ensemble piece like it's You're not right. it's not the Jet Li show like it it's there's a lot of other big name Chinese actors in that it's it's kind of everybody's story but this was like a massive production that kind of put him front and center and you can kind of detect that he was kind of shying away from these sorts of things because like nothing really had the same level of maturity or scale to it um after fearless like i mean expendables movies again that's an ensemble piece uh the forbidden kingdom is just as popcorn as it gets it's very disposable his participation in it is fairly minimal for the most part yeah yeah i, I, have, I, have, I hate I have that movie beef with that film <laughs> yeah finally pit Chan and Lee against each other, and your protagonist is this milk toast martial arts fan. I, I don't know what oh. it is, Sean Parker, but that that happens a lot. 
uh, in in film and in in just in physical contest in general. It seems like mm. when, a lot of times you like the two big names, the two forces of nature that you you desperately want to see come together. When it inevitably happens, it's like fifty fifty whether or not it's going to pan out uh, to everybody's benefit. Mm. And in the in the film world and like in the wrestling world in particular, a lot of times uh, egos are involved. I don't suspect that Jet Li has an inflated ego. I know I Jackie Chan. So. I know Jackie Chan does, um, but his flares up here and there. <laughs> it flares up here and there, but a lot of it comes down to how much creative control he has over a product. So something like Forbidden Kingdom, I seriously doubt he had a whole lot of say in how things were constructed there. No, I mean, it seemed like it was a very Americanized production through and through, which is another thing that like makes me mad. It's like we shouldn't be the ones pulling the strings on these two people finally like pairing off against each other. Let them do it on their own terms. <laughs> yeah, to, to quote Ken Watanabe, let them fight. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it, it's it's one of those things that unfortunately this does happen a lot where it, the, the two guys that you, you desperately want to see work together, the unique specialities and intensities that they bring to the screen Sometimes they just they they don't make great dance partners, um, and in Jackie Chan's case, like he has his own school of action choreography. Like yeah. he has his Jackie Chan stunt team, and part of the reason he has that is because they're best suited to working with him in his style and in his rhythm. In Jet Li's case, he's worth he's worked with some of the best choreographers on the planet. In in particular, like Yuan Wu Ping and Corey Yuen, he's done a lot of work with both of them. But at the end of the day, the one criticism I've often had of Jet Li as a performer is that he can't help but insert Gong Fu into everything he does. Hmm. Like That's part of why I really enjoy Unleashed is because he's still doing Gong Fu. Like, he's still doing his wushu forms and whatnot to some extent, but he's being asked to kind of make it a little bit more raggedy, to mm-hmm. make it more intense and animalistic and off-brand. Yeah. And he really inserts some acting and actual performance into his movements. But for the most part, like, he can't help himself. It's just, it's built in. He just, he hmm. he is a physical manis- manifestation of Gong Fu. Whereas, like, someone like Donnie Yen ha- was raised, like, not just as a martial artist, but as a filmmaker. Like, he has film credits, like, film directing and choreography credits dating back to, like, the 90s. And he's oh, been wow. working with the masters since then. And on top of that, he was also raised in america to some extent and his approach to martial arts in film again he's had a filmmaker's eye to to add to his choreography palette but in addition to that he's also had that bruce lee mentality of every style every approach is fair game as long as it results in a good product and so to that extent he's he's incorporated whatever works and whatever is practical to to stage to stage the action in the most entertaining way and because of that, the way he moves, the way he choreographs his scenes over the years has incorporated a lot of different forms and styles. Like he doesn't move like Jet Li where it's just like very traditional. It's like, no, he, he incorporates like Western boxing. He incorporates a lot of MMA these days, like a lot of Brazilian jiu-jitsu and, and grappling techniques and whatnot. And when it comes to seeing Jet Li and Jackie Chan work together, it's like you have one guy who is like, the oldest of old school gong fu pr- practitioners and then jackie chan who's just like i hesitate to even call it fighting 
It's it's more just like moving in an awesome way that involves hitting people. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's like action ballet. <laughs> yes, yeah, I, I think that's a very accurate description. But c- combining those two elements, it, it stands to reason that it's like maybe those won't go together that well. But on top of that, it's like on the set of the Forbidden Kingdom. Is this really the best staging ground for that? But there's precedent for this. I mean, for fuck's sake, we got to see Jackie Chan and Donnie Yen work together in Shanghai Nights. Right, right. Does anybody give a shit about their scene together? No, because it sucked, and that movie sucks. <laughs> and then, like, uh, what was it, the vampire effect or whatever? Oh. They, they also work together in that. Oh, yeah, we can't call it the vampire effect because vampires are banned in China, so it's also called the twins effect. <laughs> But yeah, again, does anybody give a shit? No, because it was on the set of The Twins Effect, a movie which is not even headlined by either of those actors. So a lot of times, unfortunately, these these meetings of the greats uh, in this world of martial arts cinema just don't pan out. I mean, in recent years, we've been seeing some good stuff. Like, Scott Adkins has been working with a lot of the right people in recent years. Like, we got Triple Threat, where we get to see him with Iko Uwe's and Tony Ja, mm. that was kind of cool. And then John Wick 4 on paper is the coolest movie ever made already. Because we have Scott Adkins, Donnie Yen, Marco Zoror, Keanu Reeves. Like, we have all the greats. Like, all the contemporary greats. Like, ready to go. It's like, man, it's going to be awesome. But hopefully it actually is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. We'll <laughs> yeah. see. We, we, we shall see. But I, I'm very hopeful because the people involved in all the John Wick movies are fantastic they know their stuff they know their stuff and they have been putting in their time for for decades working on the sets of some of the trashiest direct-to-video movies you've ever heard of (laughs) most of which i own (laughs) (laughs) i wonder if part of like the intensity and the choreography they do now is just like taking out their frustrations on working on such such bad films that uh, they had to put their talents into it for so long. I mean, Daniel Bernhard is like one of the the stalwarts of the eighty seven eleven stunt team, like Chad Stahelski's, or I think that's how you say his name, like his stunt crew. And I think he's been on Mystery Science Theater three thousand at least twice. Like like films from his filmography have made appearances on that program at least twice. So he put in his time and nowadays he gets to get killed by the likes of Hugh Jackman and the rock and like all the big time stars. Like he's been killed by Jason Statham a couple times. He's been killed by Van Damme. He's been killed by all the greats. <laughs> That's how, you know, you've made it as a yeah. stunt guy is you've been oh, yeah. killed. You've been killed by everybody. <laughs> <laughs> but has he been killed by master chin? <laughs> Uh, I mean, Master Chin, unfortunately, I don't think he got to take a life. Like, that's how you can tell you suck at being a martial artist. You haven't killed a man. In cold blood. <laughs> By the way, like, like you said, Master Chin did have it coming a little bit. And I want to say it's only just because, like, that actor, uh, he, he kind of mastered the arrogant laugh. Oh, like, oh, yes. <laughs> it, it, was very, it had this very fake, like... It's called... Is it like... As the camera's like drifting over to Jet Li, you just hear that laugh kind of like in the background. It's just like, man, he really is not impressed by like what's going on at his birthday party, but he's just like giving the the barest of effort to like conceal it. No, it, it, it is a it is a practiced arrogance. <laughs> this has been deployed strategically many a time in this man's life. So to some extent he probably had this coming. 
Because <laughs> he's an arrogant prick. And he lets you know by going, oh, ho, 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 <laughs> when your back is turned. Uh, but yeah, the village scenes uh, with Jet Li are incredibly long in the director's cut. We have this entire subplot about this fucking ox and this goddamn kid. By the way, the kid acting in this movie is actually pretty good. Every like they're all like kind of saccharine. Like all the kids are a little too sweet and cute for their own good, but it's kind of pleasant. Like they're all yeah. kind of fun. Like I like the bully and young Hoyanja kind of going back and forth. Like especially mm-hmm. that beat where the bully beats him up and has his, he's doing the Chris Jericho pin on him, the one foot on him, and then he's like, "Yeah, I beat you, ha ha ha." And it's like you're twice the size of him, and he doesn't know martial arts, and you do. What did you expect? <laughs> but then he throws salt on the wound by, like, saying, ha I beat you. And then he throws his hands up and says, I won! I won! <laughs> and he runs over to his friends. It's just like, dude, you have to make a big spectacle out of it. <laughs> like, but in the village, though, uh, there is an additional scene in the director's cut, which absolutely doesn't need to be here. I, I don't really know why it's here, honestly. Seems like that's a, a bit of a theme. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, like, my opinion of the director's cut is that most of the additional material is extraneous. But basically, it's this additional scene where the little boy who's obsessed with the ox, uh, the ox dies. And again, the, everybody's okay with it because that ox served its purpose. It lived a long life. It worked its ass off. And now it's dead, and we're all happy for it. Um, so the kid tries to steal an ox from a neighboring village and then the neighboring village is represented as a bunch of like indiana jones-esque jungle natives with face paint and spears and remember this village that jet lee is in is supposed to be close by and that the topography and the climate like it's like a pleasant serene like mountain village and then like just over the hill is this fucking jungle village <laughs> but like one of these guys like the village chief apparently is a Thai boxer played by a Thai actor and he his his daily garb consists of rope roped fists like he's ready to go at any at any moment just just very ong bak <laughs> yes but he just just random chinese Thai boxer in the jungle <laughs> and uh the 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 ritual in that village if you try to steal is if you're a kid all the kids in the village get to beat your ass until an incense stick burns out so they start beating this kid's ass, and then Jet Li and all the other villagers show up, and the, and Jet Li steps in, and he says, like, no, beat my ass instead. <laughs> so they do the same arrangement with the incense stick, and the Thai boxer just beats the fuck out of him, and he just lets it happen. And then the old grandma has to remind him, like, just because, like, just because he says he has to beat your ass until the incense burns out doesn't mean you can't, like, prevent the ass beating. So like you don't have to hit him back, just don't don't let him beat your ass. So he starts like defending himself but not hitting back. And nothing of import happens here aside from like hammering home this idea of penance where it's like this is him like almost doing like self like flagellation where he's like allowing himself to be physically harmed as penance for like past misdeeds or something. But then the end of the conflict is uh the tie boxer takes a spill and much like what happens with the O'Brien character, Jet Li prevents him from like cracking his head open on the ground, and then the incense burns out, and they take the kid back, and it's just like, what was that? Like even the lighting in this scene is terrible. Like it looks cheap, and the costuming of everybody, it's it's a little uncomfortable because there may be like some 
some sort of racism going on that I'm not entirely aware of. <laughs> Sounds like maybe it was a like, oh, Muay Thai is getting really popular right now. Like, let's let's integrate a little bit of that in there and appeal to Thailand as an additional market for this movie. I mean, there are some interesting connections between the the Thai cinema world and and the Chinese one, especially these days. Because you're absolutely right. In 2006, Tony Jaa was he had a rocket strapped to his ass. Like even yeah. even when Tarantino was paying to have his movies distributed in the U.S., he hadn't had like the the meltdown yet. <laughs> Yeah, he he didn't have his meltdown and go and live in a cave as a Buddhist monk for a couple of years before they before coming back to finish Ong Bak Two. He's okay now. He's 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 back to normal now. Like but he, <laughs> he he bit off more than he could chew. But it's it's interesting because like the Chinese cinema world seems to have like co opted him as a martial arts star because he he makes a lot of appearances in Chinese produced products these days as just kind of like a. I don't know, like a stunt casted ex- like extra element to sell the movie to the like the Thai market or something because he's such an astronomical star in that region. But it's weird. There was this period where Chinese cinema and martial arts cinema just seemed just didn't really seem to have a guy because like Donnie Yen has been old for over a decade now. He's he is not a young man as much as as much as like people seem to forget that he's not young. <laughs> and then. uh Wu Jing or Jing Wu, however, whichever, whichever the the naming scheme is, somehow that charismaless motherfucker, like that charisma vacuum, somehow became the most bankable guy in all of Chinese cinema. I don't know how he managed that, but he went from being the guy with the white coat and the knife in SPL to being the wolf warrior guy and raking in billions of dollars every time he makes a shitty movie. <laughs> but this was before he took off. So like there was this lull where it's like Jet Li saying he doesn't want to do martial arts movies. Donnie Yen is kind of older than we'd like. So uh, let's let's co-op Tony John. Just say, yeah, he'll be in some Chinese movies. He can't speak the language, but he's got the moves. So maybe we can sell him. But yeah, this did feel like maybe we're just trying to shoehorn Thai boxing into something that doesn't necessarily call for it with an additional five-minute scene that kind of goes nowhere. <laughs> and repeats some story beats that we get later on. <laughs> yeah, and in much better form. But yeah, a long story short, Hoyan Jia leaves the village. Moon is kind of bummed about it. The two of them kind of flirt with each other, but never explicitly because Chinese cinema, we're not really big on romance unless that's the official genre uh, affiliation of the film. Uh, Hoyanja heads back to Tanjin, uh, and he goes and pays respects uh, to his dead family. Uh, he also makes up with Nong Jin Sun, uh, and this is also in the director's cut where he recruits uh, his old disciples. He he goes and uh, pays tribute to Master Chin and his family, and uh, he also visits uh, Zhao, the guy who's assy beat on the tall platform. Uh, he goes and he tries to make up with him, uh, and he says, "Fuck off." Uh, but he does show up later, um, and he comes around eventually. But for now, he's like, fuck off, Jet Li. Get out of here. <laughs> um, My head is still barely held together. <laughs> for, for fucking real, man. Like, like, folks at home, look up that shot, because the, this bump is nasty. Like, I don't care if there was, like, a, a digitally removed, like, a green-screened-out stunt pad, like a crash pad that he fell on. This looks gnarly. Like he, his forehead bounces off the ground. It's the first point of contact. You almost expect it to be like the moment where, uh, when he witnesses his father early in the film, like hit the bench 
and like a minute later it falls apart. He's like he gets up from being head, hit in the head, and he leaves the house, <laughs> the city, and then just explodes or something. Like that's that's what should have happened given the sheer force. Well, it, it's like that robot chicken gag or whatever, where the the Ponda Baba, the guy with the butt mouth in Star Wars: A New Hope, it's it's his day <laughs> before he gets his arm cut off <laughs> for comments that weren't said by him, just by his his ugly friend. It's like we follow an alternate cut of the movie as we follow Zhao back home. And then like his one eye goes cross-eyed and his brains spill out onto the dinner table. (laughs) (laughs) The end. (laughs) Just had a delayed effect. But the last act of the movie flies the fuck by. Like it's at a breakneck pace in either cut of the movie. Especially, especially the theatrical cut since three quarters of the finale are airlifted for the very beginning <laughs> that's old oh, shit that's right i hadn't it go, thought it, about it's, that it's quite it's it's quite quick like it, it really does like i think ultimately it, it's very effective for the beginning of the movie and maybe is the good way to go uh it's a great hook it, but it's also like some of the best action choreography of the film just like right up front and then the back half is just such a such a quick little blip uh the the competition itself yeah it it's interesting because uh Ipman has a similar problem where it, uh this this happens sometimes when you're you're trying to stay stage this martial arts epic but for whatever reason you end up casting somebody who's not the most talented to serve as the final challenge like the final physical challenge for the hero where it's like in the first Ipman film Everybody I know who's seen this movie agrees with me that the final fight at the end of that movie is kind of flimsy. Like it, it, it feels mm. incredibly one-sided. You can count on one hand the number of strikes landed on Ipman during that fight. So he gets kicked a couple times. That's it, and then <laughs> it's just a one-sided just drubbing. Like, like, and and it's fairly brief on top of that. So that movie kind of peaks in the middle. Um, and a lot, unfortunately, a lot of martial arts movies that have casting like this, this happens where the, the final fight at the end of this movie is between Jet Li and Shido Nakamura, who, as far as I know, has a little bit of martial arts training. I mean, if you've been in a Japanese public school, you probably did a little bit of judo at some point. Um, and he comes but, across well. He's competent but, and but he's doubled like, a lot. But like, you, it's also, there's a lot of attention as in him as an opponent is... I wouldn't say lost, but like it's just not really there because he he finds the whole situation to be like disgraceful. He thinks like, oh, they're like they're like manipulating this stuff against uh, well, Jet Li, and the the ultimate opponent is is like a cup of poison, really. Yeah, I mean, they do kind of touch on that a little bit where. Um, they they preface that final fight between each other um, with a conversation. So yeah. he's the he's the only one of the foreign opponents that seeks an audience with Hoyanja before the fight, and they have a little, they drink tea together and they just chat for a little bit and they talk philosophy, and Hoyanja talks about how like tea should not be judged and basically his philosophy on martial arts is it comes down to the practitioner, not the art itself, um, which. I don't know if that's true. Like, like <laughs> these these days, like martial arts are in a very odd space right now. And I, I 
I have weird feelings on the matter because there's there's a lot of conflict in the world of martial arts right now because of the realities of like mixed martial arts training and Brazilian jiu-jitsu in particular and the practicality of certain martial arts forms and techniques is that you can look this shit up on YouTube. There's all these situations now where they're pairing up these supposed martial arts masters of like ancient arts and they're having these public contests between them and like not even super talented mixed martial artists and the the practitioner of the ancient art ends up being humiliated in most cases mm-hmm. and these are these are being broadcast on like public chinese television and stuff so it's like i think we're in the middle of a wave where maybe the cultural chinese sentiment right now is like this is an element of our culture that as much reverence as we have as much respect for it as we have um modernization is a reality and mm-hmm in terms of like practical fighting techniques we've we've learned some lessons in the intervening years and it's probably wise to apply them um but yeah hoyanja basically has this whole philosophy about like judge judge the practitioner not the art itself like there is no art that's truly superior to another take from that what you will um but long story short the his japanese opponent here shows respect and the two of them come to this agreement that the true opponent in any contest between like physical contest between people uh the true opponent is yourself um and this is what sean parker was alluding to when he said that (laughs) if you really want to get down to it the final battle of the movie is a cup (laughs) it it is a cup of poison tea (laughs) it is a battle within just not the way he originally was kind of phrasing it it's like oh god this is shockingly literal (laughs) (laughs) um, but before the final battle is where we get that o'brien fight with nathan jones who we talked about at length already so we don't need to visit that again but um this is where nong jin son becomes like the the biggest fucking stand for for hoyanja we should like, talk about him for a bit yeah like, please please because like probably he's like the best friend in all of cinema you look at their history he like they grow up together he does he does uh jin young <laughs> What is it? What does it say? Ho Yeonja. Ho Yeonja. He does his like homework for yeah. him while he, you know, is secretly practicing. Um, gets him into trouble here and there, uh, and then eventually smashes up his restaurant <laughs> as adults, uh, ruins the friendship. But then he's he welcomes him back because he realizes how important it is for, well, Chinese pride to, to have uh, Yong Zhuo as like kind of the instrument uh, in fighting against these like, well, pretty racist <laughs> statements being thrown around by Nathan Jones. Yeah. Um, in addition to come on. <laughs> that's the main one. I need, need, need he say more. Uh, but like, I was, I was pretty impressed uh just with how willing he was to keep coming around like despite like things that would happen that's like oh yeah that's it you don't come back from this and uh and he would change his mind and it's like he he's not owed like Jet Li's character's not owed anything by this guy at this point but he continually <laughs> goes above and beyond so what a pal yeah it, this is where the i don't know the political aspect of the story really becomes 
borderline unbearable where it's like <laughs> they, these aren't these aren't characters anymore they're they're stand-ins for concepts and national pride essentially yeah and it's like it's still very watchable and it's by the way this movie is very aesthetically pleasing like it's mm-hmm. it's gorgeous to look at from time to time some of these sets in particular the the staging of the final battle sequences yeah like, that set is fucking awesome it's i great. love it no, it, it's absolutely gorgeous to look at. There's a lot of gorgeous sets in this. The the restaurant and the final battle are some. Yeah, that's another sequence that feels kind of pulled out of a Zangumo. Very much so. Set Very piece. much so. Yeah. Um, but yeah, th- this is where both characters kind of just. I don't know. Like he said, it's a little too cozy. Like it, it's it falls in line a little too easily. Where it's just Hoyan Jia shows up and his demeanor has changed. Therefore, his buddy jumps to conclusions like, oh, your face tells your your serene face tells me that you have grown as a person. Therefore, I will financially back you both in staging an international fight competition with a giant hulking man, as well as I will help you found a school because I can see on your face that you have lived a life. And Let your me life just parallels that flip the my ox. restaurant business and like throw that all behind you as well. One, in line, this endeavor. one line of dialogue. He says that. It's just, it's just like, oh, I'm going to sell the restaurant. It's like, why? It's like, because China. <laughs> it's like, oh, sure. <laughs> like, yeah, you'll just flip your entire livelihood <laughs> um, because China. Okay. But yeah, uh, he financially backs him in all of his future endeavors. Um, and they together they found the, uh, uh, what's the name of the school? I think it's like the Jingwu Academy or something. Yes. Um, yes. Which I think actually exists. Um, I and- imagine. I mean, the they the end credits thing said uh, circa 2006 that there's branches in 50 countries to this day. Yeah, so it actually exists, and it fi- it figures prominently into the story of all the uh, Hoyanja follow-up movies that we listed off earlier on, like the the Fist of Fury and and uh, Fist of Legend and whatnot. Um, and yeah, they found the school together, and the idea is this is supposed to be like a conglomeration of Chinese martial arts teachings, where it's like there's no one headmaster of the school. This is just like a gymnasium where all all styles, all all disciplines are welcome. And uh, they open unify the China, basically. Yes, unify China, which is of course, unfortunately, probably the biggest takeaway from the narrative of this movie. Yeah, I mean, the implication <laughs> is pretty strong that it's like it's China versus foreigners in the last like half hour or so. Yeah, this is a recurring theme in, in virtually all uh, Chinese period action films. Uh, at the end of the... Like, you see it happen in the Ipman films. Like, they, they try to have their cake and eat it too, where almost every story in uh, the Ipman films, at least the Donnie Yen ones, begins as Chinese infighting and then transitions at the midway point into like, oh, wait, we should go beat up that guy. <laughs> like, we should all yeah. band together to beat up that guy. It's like, yeah, so this is a very common theme. Uh, if you've at all, if you're at all familiar with, with martial arts cinema from China, like this, this is an expect, this is an expected thing. It comes and, up. And, and all of the foreigners are, are not, not treated so flattered uh, in a flattering way. In this I mean, film. They're, they're I, like a bunch of brutes. Yeah. And like the one guy who comes out looking good, uh, Tanaka, the final Japanese opponent, but he comes out looking good in part because he sees how corrupt everything is and lets Huang Zhao win. So 
it's like that's what it takes to be a, a good foreigner you have to give up <laughs> yeah i'm i'm curious what this what this particular arrangement of characters would look like in 2021 yeah and i could be looking into it way too much for all i know but no but but this is this is a thing like like in particular like period pieces like this and in even contemporary stories like china and japan have beef with each other this it's inescapable like like so many so many of these stories paint the japanese as as really shitty people especially in this time period and in most cases it is entirely warranted but what you see in a lot of these movies is usually there will be like one japanese character who through the strength of their character is shown to be at least somewhat sympathetic mm-hmm. but like the nation as a whole and the culture as a whole is just like painted as just like oh they fucking suck yeah <laughs> and like you kind of saw that in in the the first ipman where the uh, general Miura character is shown to have like a personal sense of honor but they really do an interesting thing with him where we show that he has a personal view on matters of honor but it's horribly skewed mm. and his perspective he has an extremely high opinion of himself and an extremely low opinion of the Chinese such that like they do a really good job of showing that character speak as if he's like a regal or stoic figure but it's like if you actually think about what he's saying, it's like, oh, he doesn't even think of these people as people. Like, like he has a air of superiority about him that's just hideous. But this character of Nakamura, he he is shown to be mostly a a good guy. It's just his handlers who are shown to be corrupt and awful, who are kind of they feel like they're stand-ins for yes, like the government at large there. Precisely, and in fact, I think it's hilarious that uh, this actor Masato Harada. Uh, who plays Mr. Mita was also exactly the same character in the last samurai. Oh, like, like <laughs> the, the exact same character, Funny. E- even almost the same time period, like, like 20, 30 years difference. It's, it's hilarious, but he was probably cast because he was like in the region. And also he uh, speaks perfect English. He speaks the queen's English. In fact, uh, he has a very pronounced British accent. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, it's like that. There's like the only the only scene of the whole movie that's all in English. It's like it kind of takes this abrupt like let's look at what the bad guys are up to in their lair, and it's like him and some British guys just all talking about like will it really will it really work or can we ensure that he'll lose? Like oh, now according yeah. to my plan, it will guarantee it. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is basically the Legion of Doom and their their swamp hideout. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 really sticks out a little bit. <laughs> it's like. This is different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's fun. I actually have a theory about uh, English scenes in a in a in particular Asian cinema, mm. like in Japanese, Korean, Chinese films. Um, I want to say that the actors are often instructed to speak slower, um, because mm. these scenes will be subtitled during theatrical screenings. Oh, um, that's my guess because guess everybody everybody sounds like crap. Like everybody sounds like crap when they speak English in these movies, and I think it's intentional. It could even like it could even go a layer deeper, where it's like we want you to look as shitty as possible. So give a terrible performance because your your people in this movie are supposed to be terrible people. So it's like we want it to also be a terrible performance on top of that. It seems legit. Yeah. yeah no, I, I I would not be surprised at all, but. Um, we head into the final battle where Hoyanja has agreed to fight four people uh, in in succession uh, to just his one, um, and we see that uh, Master Chin's uh, ex-wife 
is uh in the audience watching oh that's not in the i don't think that's lingered on at least in the theatrical cut and also in addition to that we also see his first two disciples like the first two guys that showed up at the restaurant like vying to join his school uh he's also re-recruited them and they've like come come full circle they're back to being goodies um and also Jao is in attendance as well and he's uh-huh. also he's also joined the school as a teacher uh, hmm. so they've unified china <laughs> um under one roof and uh the opponents trains uh, people by dropping them off of vast heights head first <laughs> <laughs> i mean if if you saw that one scene from the director's cut where he beats everyone's asses uh, yeah this, this, is, this is the this is the hard body technique just fall, find something high to fall off of head first and someday you'll be as tough as me <laughs> um, but the opponents are representatives of different disciplines and nations uh, so the first mm-hmm. opponent is a British boxing champion uh, and this fight is like blinking you'll miss it it's, it it's, it's like 50 seconds long <laughs> it is not yeah it is it is not much of an exchange yeah but it is satisfying to see (laughs) well i mean one of these i mean there's four fights so one of these guys had to just completely get steamrolled it may as well be the first guy yeah um and you know it's also like that i think it's the brownton uh school of boxing where this i think this is like pre marquee of queensbury so this is like wrestle boxing different different this was pugilism different really type characterized of by the mutton chops that's very the much <laughs> it's the most prominent physical feature on this actor <laughs> um and next up is a, a belgian uh he's like the knight's general coach or something so I'm, I'm guessing this is like some form of uh spear school uh Pike that's a pretty that's a pretty cool fight it's a very cool fight um and handling these implements these long spears is difficult and it needs to be said as like as I haven't been bad mouthing Jet Li, but as much as I've said about his his technique on film, the way he moves, if you put a tool in Jet Li's hands, like a sword, a spear, anything like a a tripole or whatever you want to call it, my God, he he is capable of magic. Like as impressive as Jet Li is with empty hands, if you put a sword in his hands, good fucking God, he he is he performs magic. It's incredible. Like it's like it's giving all... a wizard their staff. Exactly. No, it, it's kind of incredible because, like, I for one, like, and everybody has their own taste. I, I for one, tend to favor empty-handed choreography. I, it's just that's my wheelhouse. That's what I, I'm most interested in. But I, I can appreciate good, good sword fighting technique. And watching Jet Li handle a sword is, it's magic. It's endlessly entertaining. Um, and indeed we get that but the the spear fight here is funny because we we attempt to add some character on the fly to this this belgian spearman by having him get all pissy (laughs) yeah 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 (laughs) it's pretty hilarious because he's just getting schooled the entire time and he keeps getting whacked not with the not with the end point of the spear but just with the pole itself so he's catching a beating here and he gets his uniform all cut up and stuff but one point he just screams to the heavens and breaks his spear over his knee <laughs> and it's like immediately his downfall yeah <laughs> yeah it is immediately his downfall because uh he gets a spear point put to his throat and he would be able to match the move if not for the fact that he just shortened his own spear so it's like oh well shit but yeah he storms off of the stage with a 
<laughs> it's like this on the fly bit of like characterization that doesn't need to be there, but it's like, you know, if you're going to fight four guys in a row, one of them should at least be kind of pissed about losing. So in the first out. half is like not, not fun. Yeah. Yeah. And then the third one I think is the most impressive. It's the fencing competition. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's a, I think it, I think he's supposed to be Italian or something, but it's a it's maybe a, Spanish, Spanish Italian. One of the, one of those uh, fleet-footed fencing techniques that's a lot more fun than some of the other stuff out there. Um, but it's it's really awesome because we get to see uh, Jet Li with like a a, str- a Chinese straight sword, so like something you'd see with like incorporated into like Tai Chi type movements, and it's incredibly fast paced. Uh, the angles used here and the footwork is really awesome you get to see the the full-bodied like chinese gong fu style of wielding a sword versus the more arm arm heavy movements and like wrist arm and wrist movements of like a european fencing technique uh the two styles play off of each other really really well and it, it ends with uh gently disarming him by like literally disarming him by taking his sword away and it's a very civil conflict uh, it's, it's probably my favorite of all the all the fights in this finale here but of course, Nakamura is the last one, and I forget the name of this style of weapon. It's a, it's a three. It's like a, it's like a staff, but uh, segmented into uh, three portions uh, connected by chains, and that's the the implement that Jet Li uses against Nakamura's uh, katana. And uh, Shiro Nakamura, his uh, he is doubled quite a bit. Like we do get a lot of shots of just him doing the choreography. But it's the doubling is evident. In fact, there's like at least one really ugly shot where he does like a backflip on a wire rig, and they do the CGI like smudge effect on his face <laughs> to oh. cover up the actor. Uh, it's not as egregious as uh, some of the stuff I've seen in some of the later Ip Man films. Like Ip Man Four, if you focus a little too hard on some of Donnie Yen's moves, it's like, oh god, they put like a, a CGI Donnie Yen face on that stunt on that stunt double. <laughs> It's like really obvious, and it looks bizarre because it's like the technology's good, but it's it's not it's not a hundred percent there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, did you have any uh, any highlights you wanted to point out about the final battle here, Sean? There's a great little moment where uh, you see his opponent struggling uh, when they exchange weapons, kind of in an impromptu fashion. He tries to wield it and ends up just like hitting himself in the in the face with this kind of segmented flame. what would you call that uh, i i wish i oh i i think i just located it's called a three section staff okay yeah uh that's a that's a great moment of levity uh and and gently just kind of offering like let's let's just trade back uh, all of that it's great <laughs> it's like I, i'm better with mine you're better with yours let's let's just <laughs> let's just go back yeah. to that for the sake of <laughs> Our country's honor and entertaining the crowd. <laughs> Let us not embarrass ourselves further. Yeah, um, but there's a there's an interlude here because the two of them come to a draw. They both put their weapons to each other's throats. Um, it's funny because like the staging of fights like this, it's like I don't know how you would do that. Like have bladed and like really really sharp bladed instruments flailing around each other. Like I don't know how you go eighty percent and not kill each other. this is always my problem with like superhero movies and stuff where it's like i'm sorry you can't just like playfully punch each other in the face man (laughs) like especially if like superpowers are involved it's like yeah 
that you really just can't do that. Like people yeah, get in, hurt <laughs> in any of the bladed competitions in this movie. It's like if someone just misjudges the angle to block, they're gonna have a sword like half embedded in their body, and everyone's gonna be like, "Oh no!" Yeah, <laughs> it's it, like... like nobody's gonna be happy about that, including <laughs> probably the person who inflicted the wound. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I don't really know how you do this, uh, but it's it's a common thing in cinema, but. Um, they have this interlude where they it's considered a draw, so they have to have a, a hand-to-hand competition following the weapon situation. And it's amidst all this like this break in the action where uh, Hoyanja has slipped some poison tea. Uh, this is something that has been intensely debated over the years as to whether this happened or not. Oh, um, Many, like, people have advocated for uh, Hoyanja having been poisoned by a Japanese physician. I don't know if it was during a, a contest, but um, his body was exhumed at one point, and uh, evidence was shown that he was uh, he, he ingested arsenic. Unfortunately, uh, the the style of medical practice at the time—remember, this is in like 1910—arsenic um, was incorporated into medicine in certain parts of China at this point in time. So it's it's debatable as to whether he was poisoned or if he was just given a prescription that included arsenic and died as a result. So this is a common element of the Hoyanja story of him being uh, deviously poisoned. Um, this is the catalyst for uh, the the Chen Zen character. Like the the, the plot of Fist of Legend uh, involves Chen Zen returning to town and saying. Uh, he he fights the Japanese fighter that Hoyanja had fought and died during the fight with, and he says, "Oh, you you were nowhere near tough enough to have beaten my masters. Some foul play must have been at work." Um, same with Fist of Fury, as far as I remember. Uh, so this is a common element of this actual historical figure's story, but it has never been confirmed as to whether it's true or not. Um, it's poetic, I guess, to some extent, but yeah, long story short, Jet Li is poisoned. He's spitting black shit out of his mouth. Maybe a good time to call it quits, but, uh, he reasons that I have exerted too much energy. The poison is in my bloodstream. So he, I guess he's a, I guess he's a medical professional now. He knows how poison works, (laughs) but we have this tearful farewell from the corner where he's acknowledging that yes, he's dying, but he's going to go out there and basically make a martyr of himself in front of this crowd because China and uh, Nong Jin Son says, okay, go go get yourself killed, buddy. Like, <laughs> we had a good run. And uh, he, uh, he starts a, like a, a crowd chant of like, stand strong. And like all the people in attendance start calling out. And uh, Nakamura is fully aware that there's something wrong. It's like, buddy, uh, we can we can just stop. Like, I don't have to murder you and deal with like that being on my conscience for the rest of my life <laughs> um, but Jet Li's like nah I'm, I'm good bro uh, so they continue to go at it I like, he's like okay then I'm not going to hold back at all <laughs> <laughs> it's like okay so just to confirm you're okay with me killing you <laughs> like yeah pretty much <laughs> um, but I like that they drop out all the sound during this last stanza of the fight where it's like it's I think it's only like the hit sounds that are retained. It's mm. just soundtrack. And uh by the way, the score is done by Shigeru Umebayashi, who is a Japanese composer who's mm. worked on a lot of Chinese films over the years. Uh twenty forty six is the the score that comes to mind when I think of him. Very very beautiful string work and stuff. Um very good score in this film. 
Um, but yeah, we get to see Hoyonja do the same corkscrew punch. We even like cut back to him murdering Master Chin. Um, but in this case, he stops short as uh, he's throwing the punch at Nakamura. He even and, uh, like reverses. He's like, I'm going to uncorkscrew that fist now that it's on him <laughs> to really to really show that I'm walking off that move. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He he completely takes it back before even making contact. And we see this like dopey smile for him on his face. Like, I did it. <laughs> like, like That one thing that was hanging over my entire life. Like that one thing, that one lesson I should have learned as a child. I finally yeah. learned. He's finally following in his father's footsteps there. Exactly. Um, and uh, before the referee can wave off the contest. By the way, the referee here is played by Big Mike Leader, uh, who is a, Brit- I believe he's British. Uh, he's worked in the the Hong Kong and the Chinese film industry for decades um, as both an actor and I think just as like a, a liaison between foreign contacts, like in the Chinese film industry. Uh, I follow his Instagram page. He posts some of the coolest shit. <laughs> he's been on the set for some of the coolest Chinese movies ever made hmm. uh, but he plays the referee here um, before he can wave it off uh, Nakamura says like wait I'm going to pick him up and declare him the winner <laughs> so I'm going to pick up this dying man <laughs> and declare him the winner so therefore the, the Chinese people can be proud and he can die a winner and I'm okay with losing because that is the warrior code <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Hoyanja dies with all of his friends surrounding him and crying over his corpse. Uh, Nakamura gets, like, he didn't need redemption, but he gets a moment where he gets to chew out his uh, Japanese handler, the guy who arranged for the poisoning and whatnot. He says, you were a disgrace to the Japanese. And then he leaves. Um, And then we get to see the spectral vision of Hoyanja (laughs) living out his eternal punishment of having to perform (laughs) wushu in a beautiful garden for all eternity. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and yeah, Moon, like, like, like Sean Parker had pointed out, it's like it's very difficult to discern what the reality is supposed to be here. Like, because she like runs out of her hut to witness this, and the last shot is Jet Li looking over his shoulder and acknowledging her. It's like, is she aware that he's dead? Is she dreaming? Is this, is this his POV thinking about her? What yeah, is it, yeah, is this his like last vision before his passing? I don't know, <laughs> but then we get those end slides talking about how awesome Wushu is and how awesome Hoyanja was, and the fact that the school continues to exist in multiple countries across the globe, uh, and that is fearless. <laughs> and there you have it. Yeah, and there you have it. That's fearless. That's Ronnie Yu's fearless from two thousand six. Uh, closing thoughts, Sean Parker. You got any? Uh, only, only that I I wasn't really. Sh- clear on when his so when his father's in the duel and he withholds that final strike and it's kind of like this it's like it's like this mantra that like Jet Li's character is like kind of like trying to unravel the whole time like figuring out like oh why did he do that and he's like at the end of the movie he's like oh I know what he finally I know understand finally why he held back from doing that well in the scene when he's doing the, the fight it it just looked like he was going to hit the guy and then noticed his kids there and like got distracted. <laughs> That's what I always thought was going on uh, until they made a much bigger deal out of like the, you know, the philosophy behind it later. And I'm just kind of wondering like, is that really, is it, was it any more than that? Was it any more than just like he was going to knock this guy out of the ring? 
I saw mean, his son got distracted and got booted out himself. I mean, you're you're not wrong. Like they they were very deliberate about showing that he noticed his opponent's family in the crowd. Or like did they, he notice his own son, who was like not supposed to be there? I think like, it was the other guy's family or something. Uh, or okay. or maybe it was Hole himself. Uh, point point is, it's it's up for debate whether or not he stopped short because of the people witnessing it, or if he just knew in his bones it wasn't good to land a open palm strike on a person's face. <laughs> it's like I think that's called a slap, but um, could be wrong. <laughs> 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 but <laughs> but it, it's interesting because the director's cut i think has an additional scene where uh jet lee goes to pay respects to his grave the grave sites of his family do you remember that in the theatrical cut i do okay yeah. never mind then because i was about to say like that being there is fine i mean it really addresses like the filial piety aspect of chinese culture for sure where it's like uh, family father big deal but um at the same time it it kind of robs the some of the weight of that final moment where he withdraws the punch because during that scene when he's at his father's grave he says i understand now that i was wrong for killing that dude with the corkscrew blow so it's like oh he learned that lesson midway through the movie so now he's relearning that lesson he's practicing that lesson at the end of the movie it's like yeah, oh yeah but but we already knew he knew that <laughs> so it, well now it, you it, really know <laughs> yeah now you now you really really know <laughs> so it's like yeah it's one of those it's an omission that maybe would have lent a little bit more strength to that moment because so. one of the big problems of the final act of this movie is like sean parker and i've been saying over and over and over again it's like the the character kind of dissolves about halfway through and ceases to grow and change such that it's like he has no more lessons to learn by the time he returns home. He's already kind of like the perfect dude. So it's like the final revelation of him not doing the thing that he did in the past. It's like, there was no tension. Like I never believed for a second he was going to do that because he's already demonstrated that he is kind of the perfect dude already. (laughs) So it's like, maybe it would have been better to show him be a, a little bit more rough around the edges by the time they get to this final conflict or something or maybe show like through the tension of which there is none during these final fights by the way it's it's all just aesthetic glory like there is zero tension in any of these fights at the end yeah it's just fun spectacle yes it's pure it's pure just audiovisual spectacle there's no narrative drama to it like maybe they could have done something where he's actually having to exert himself and he's getting tired and it's getting dangerously close to him, like legit hurting somebody. Right. I mean, they, yeah, like making a big deal of the fact, like this is four fights in a row, in a of, row, like the top people. Yeah. But maybe the maybe the movie had kind of, you know, blown its wad early by having him be like, "Hey, all the fighters at once, come fight me in the town square." <laughs> yeah, it, it's 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 a different route you could have taken with the storytelling one. I would have been curious to see because I, I do like having consequences involved in violence. Like, like to me, like I said about like, like superhero movies and stuff, it's like, I don't take it casually when people are hitting each other in the face. Like, like there needs to be some dramatic weight behind any instance of people hitting each other. Uh, otherwise like struggling to remember uh, important details the next day <laughs> <laughs> yeah you could go the the rocky balboa ro- route where he, he's running down the stairs and yelling about uh reindeer on the roof and using expressions like 
Rantlers. <laughs> uh, yeah, Hoyanja gets a little punch drunk or something after you know a lifetime of fighting. Um, but you know, it is what it is. I still think Fearless is quite an enjoyable movie. Yeah, uh, the political and cultural stuff do get a little heavy-handed towards the end, such that it robs it of some fun. But in terms of just like spectacle, it's a pretty awesome exhibition of martial arts. Uh, it's it's really fun to look at, and and Jet Li is very much on on point with his portrayal of the character, especially I think in the early goings when he's kind of a prick. <laughs> towards the second half, he gets a bit boring, but he is an extremely charismatic performer. Like he. Like that's part of why I'd like to talk about Unleashed someday. It's just he has to do a lot with almost no dialogue, and he really pulls it off. Like he really gives a really solid performance in that. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of it has a lot of good like attentive listening in that movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like the moments with the with the the girl like are very very awkward from time to time because she's she just will not shut up because she's just filling the silence <laughs> um but at the same time if if you key in on him and his responses to all of it like it is a conversation it's just delivered through through eye movements and body mm. language and it mm-hmm. really adds up to a, a really fun watch um so yeah gently yeah. is, is a figure that i'd very much like to continue to revisit on the show um but yeah, thanks so much for introducing this one as a as a topic, Sean Parker. I really appreciate my pleasure. It. I'm I'm happy to get the uh, the Jet Li train embarking on yeah. this platform. Yeah, I, I am too. But um, before we go, Sean Parker, uh, would you like to let the the folks at home know uh, where they can find you and Hapstance Films and all that stuff? Well, they can they can find me if they just search for Hapstance Films and and spell it right by some miracle. H A P S T A N C E. Um, yeah, we're, we're still on YouTube doing fun little things. Trevor helped us very recently, uh, with a little short called Ben and the Vampire, uh, as our editor, which I must say, you did a fine job and it's not often that I entrust the edit of one of my films to someone else. So we may, we may just do that again. Well, I'm I'm all for it, man. I'd I'd be game. Uh, it, th- man, that that was an adjustment for me. Like working, playing with other people's toys is not something I've ever done before, <laughs> and it it makes me incredibly nervous because it's like I don't quite know if what I'm doing is good or not. I'm just doing with it what I will, and it's like it's like one of those things where it's like I, I want to like ask for direction but I don't know that I'm going to get it because I was just like handed a bucket of footage and told to do something with it. So it's like, I don't know if I'm doing a good job. You did a good job. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, but yeah, Hapstance films, definitely check them out. They have a, they have a wonderful assortment of, of shorts. And uh, in fact, I, the, if we had a video component for the show, this is where I'd show off the, uh, the Blu-ray I have of coup de cinema uh, Sean Parker's uh, feature film that he made with his buddy Austin. Uh, it's it's a fun watch, and uh, yeah, I, I was really happy to be involved with that to some to some capacity. <laughs> Even if all it was was hanging out in a what the quarry with you uh-huh. uh, in Olympia and uh, falling down hills for an afternoon. <laughs> uh, but yeah, for sure, check out Hapstance Films. Really cool stuff, and uh, apparently. Sean Parker has told me he's got he's got some cool stuff in the pipe, so uh, look forward to that. Um, 
But in the meantime, uh, if you'd like to catch up on any of our Catching Up on Cinema content, uh, you can find all of that collected on our website at catchinguponcinema.com. Uh, you can also find us on the social medias at Instagram at Catching Up on Cinema, as well as the Twitter at Catching Cinema. So feel free to hit me up at either of those. And the show is available on pretty much every podcasting platform you can imagine, including Cephalopod. So fucking Google it. And that being said, thanks so much for listening, and we will catch you next time. Ta-ta!